This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program. It's the Benghazi hearing update. Thank heavens it's over. What, 11 and a half hours just riveting. <laughs> I was telling you this morning, uh, I, went, I went home yesterday, I got all kinds of things yeah. accomplished, visited family, yeah. came home, and they were still talking to her. Eleven, it was supposed to be eight hours. That's called scope creep. Yeah. It got it just kept going. It just kept getting bigger her voice, and bigger. Her, she started losing her voice a little bit towards yeah. the end. I think she started slurring her speech. She was asking for room service at one point. Like, can we get a sandwich in here? I need my feet are swollen. Can we get somebody to rub my feet? That was um, and again, this is the neat thing though. Trey Gowdy, who's over the committee, the select committee, Benghazi Select Committee. He, this is what he found out. He found out something very, very interesting. Uh, basically, he found out nothing. In the end, nothing too new. Now, you may have learned something. What I learned is that there's one of my favorite quotes uh, is, if it's not the snake that bites you that kills you. It's chasing the snake that drives the venom to the heart. And it looked like the GOP, it looked like they were chasing a snake and they were dying because it gave Hillary Clinton 11 and a half hours, roughly, to not always look great, but to look pretty smart and to look like, you know, she knew what she was doing, at times very presidential, at times kind of bored, a little frustrated. And uh, so when we think about it, it's it really, in the end, has to be, I don't know. I guess it has to be. We have to learn something. So uh, here's what Trey Gowdy said in the end about what he learned. When you say new today, I mean, we knew some of that already. We knew about the emails. In terms of her testimony, I don't know that she testified that much differently today than she has the previous time she's testified. Yeah. Not much new there. So after 11 hours, mm-hmm. what did you learn new? Eh, not much. I think I think people. It's it's the Rorschach test, right? So you look at the you look at the ink splot, and you're like, oh, it's a goat. It's a goat, right? And the other one's like, no, it's President Reagan. <laughs> okay, you're gonna see what you want to see. So if you don't like Hillary, you thought, oh, you loved it. You loved it. I personally loved just watching like a real prosecutor like Trey Gowdy. Oh yeah, I just like how they do. It's their, like he's circling yeah. the prey. Because, I mean, that, that's in. like, yeah, that's like, is it Matlock? That's like Matlock. You're watching Perry Mason. Watching Perry Mason. Wait, we're really dating. We really are. You're, it's like watching NCIS. No, they that's don't do that. Even, yeah. See, Law and Order used to do the yeah. courtroom stuff, but not really. Yeah. But what I think I learned is that no wonder our government struggles getting anything done. There are 500 levels. Four people died. And yet we don't even really know why. I don't think, or do we? Well, we know they were attacked, and they were right. You know, that, we know that the terrorist yeah. attacks. Well, well, hold on, blah blah blah. 
terrorists, protesters, protesters, whatever you want to call it, they were attacked and they were fighting. That you know, that's the they, they, that's how they died. But what led to that? What security problems? You who start, caused it? it who's fired? It, in the questioning of of Hillary Clinton, you saw that there was a huge bureaucracy behind her. Uh. And everything got muddled up mm-hmm. in the process. So probably that's oh. the one thing that comes out of this is the State Department probably needs to learn maybe to streamline yeah. things so yeah. the important things happen. Yeah, but will they? No, no. It's the government. That's right. So that's what I learned is that in the end, it it's just a big bureaucracy. I mean, one of the things they complained about the committees, they couldn't get documents. Mm-hmm. And afterwards, uh, as we just aired that clip with Trey Gowdy saying they didn't really learn, any, learn anything new, right before that he said, I would like the certain departments that are, have these documents that we're still looking for to please give them to us. So they're still looking to find out more information from this, and they're still not getting cooperation from different areas of the government. It's a uh, – I mean sometimes they were highly offensive. I mean it was, it was weird. It was just weird. But it also taught me a lot. We gave – uh we gave a lot of time to Hillary to be Hillary. We gave a lot of time to the GOP guys to beat him up. It was interesting that everyone on the the Democratic side, they were like, so just tell us your favorite things, bears, unicorns. What do you like most, Hillary? Here's five minutes. Why are you awesome? Go. <laughs> and then the Republicans are like, so do you kill children? What is it about the children that you hate? But every one of these sort of oh committees gosh. that end up on TV, that's what it ends up being is it's whatever side is for it. But can you – I mean is every single Republican on the same page on this? Are they, do they yes. all think this is vastly important or does no. every – I was waiting no. for a Democrat to actually point out that there were some problems with what happened. I would have loved that. But all of them basically no. said you know, there was gumdrops. I mean and you, you could at least candy. be saying – and this is one of the best questions asked never got answered because they get so jazzed about – I'm on TV. Either. Yeah. But the best question was, so Hillary, did you, did you do anything wrong and what did you do specifically? What specifically did you do wrong? Right. And they stopped talking, let her go uh-huh. and just sit back and watch her if she had missed something great, if she takes some ownership. Yeah. And but, that was a question that could have been asked by either side. I mean, right. So if I was a Democrat, I would have said, look, just to look like I'm a little impartial, I would have said, look. Hillary, this wasn't done perfectly. We know changes had to be made. What specifically did you do wrong? What would you redo? If you could do it all over again, what would you change? Would you be more accessible? Would you be having more one-on-one emails with your ambassador? Not having him just go through everyone else. What would you do differently? Because wouldn't that be great to know? And if she could be honest and say, yeah, I probably would try to increase my communication with my direct report ambassadors. Great. Okay. Yeah. And some of that's his responsibility and some of it's her responsibility. There we go. But that's not what they want. No, that's not what they want. They want a smoking gun, a direct line of fault. Yeah. And that never happened. And there was weird stuff, too. So if you don't trust Hillary already, you're not going to trust her after this. Because cause still you're, you're thinking, who's Sid Blumenthal? Yeah. Because he was big in this. How come Sid Blumenthal gets more, who's a really good friend, that's sending her information about Libya? And there's a lot to the Libya thing. She was building her whole career on the Libya thing. I mean, as far as, it was one of her great accomplishments. But... Sid Blumenthal doesn't like Obama. Obama doesn't like Sid Blumenthal. It was ugly. They fight. And then there was a question is did the White House know about him and all, you know, did they know you were communicating with Sid Blumenthal? Yeah. She's like, uh <laughs> In fact, here is Trey Gowdy's line of I guess questioning on Sid Blumenthal. 
did the president know that Mr. Blumenthal was advising you? He wasn't advising me. And, you know, Did Mr. he know Chairman, that he was your most prolific emailer that we have found on the subjects of Libya and Benghazi? I don't know what this line of questioning does to help us get to the bottom of the deaths of four Americans. I'll be happy, to, tell, I'll to, be happy to help you understand but, that, Madam Secretary. But, it's relevant because our ambassador was asked to read and respond to Sidney Blumenthal's mm -hmm. drivel. He, it was sent to him to read and react to. In some instances, on the very same day, he was asking for security. Mm. That was one of the better lines of questioning that let's just answer that. Like, why did Sid Blumenthal have so much influence? And she, I think she tried. But the deal is, it's just crazy. And I think it was actually really good for Hillary because I think she ended up looking presidential many, many, many times yesterday. And I think she also looked bored at times. And she'd probably be at times a good poker player, but not very good at other times. No. Because her face shows a lot. But, I mean, it's some good. of the questions she could see where it was going, oh. and she's like, oh, really? Again? But, again, I think this isn't going to be – this isn't how you get Hillary Clinton. No. So if that was really their goal, not not a great job. Uh, anyway, thank heavens that's over. And Hillary's three for three, apparently. For the month, yes. She's had a great month. And we may even be losing another candidate from the Democratic side. That's the reports. Okay, let's go to the news, find out what's going on there. Lincoln Chafee, he's our, our favorite Democratic candidate for president. Not even 10 people, the 10 people who donated a significant amount of money to Lincoln Chafee's often overlooked presidential bid think he has much of a chance. On Thursday night, he did spark a rare burst of interest in his campaign, but perhaps for the wrong reasons. He put out a tweet that said, I look forward to speaking at the DNC Women's Forum uh, tomorrow morning. I'll address my future in the campaign there. So... Huh. The assumption is that because his poll numbers have been hovering around zero and he's only raised $30,000 for his campaign that he'll be dropping out this morning. But we'll find out here in a few minutes. He's supposed to be addressing, I think, around 7, 7.30. So here hmm. pretty soon. That'll be exciting. Uh, early Friday, Nashville police said that one man was killed. Three female bystanders were wounded in a shooting on the University of Tennessee campus. Uh, the incident started when two young men, not students at the university, said they got in an argument over a dice game. And oh uh, things turned... Violent started. Yeah, dicey. There you go. A member of the U.S. military special operations team was killed when American and Kurdish commandos raided an Islamic State prison in northern Iraq to free hostages being held at the compound, U.S. officials said on Thursday. Uh, reports said that this marks the first time that a U.S. serviceman has been killed in combat a combat situation with ISIS. Hmm. That's sad. But the operation successfully rescued about 70 Kurdish hostages. So, successful would yeah. be... Uh, we lost a serviceman there. Mexican authorities said Thursday they seized about 10 tons of marijuana in an elaborate tunnel with a rail car system that extended well into San Diego from Tijuana. It was designed to smuggle drugs into the U.S. The discovery on Wednesday marks one of the longest and more sophisticated clandestine tunnels found uh, on the U.S.-Mexico border. Wow. The passage was nine feet deep, 2,000 feet long, three quarters of that, of that distance in Tijuana, the rest into San Diego. It was lit, ventilated, and built with metal beams to prevent collapse. It was under uh, unclear whether any drugs actually got through the tunnel or if it had an exit yet on the U.S. side. It was also unclear which drug trafficking organization owned the tunnel. Wow. But this is more than just a hole in the ground. Yeah. They had a, was uh, El Chapo there? Not sure. Okay. Though they think probably his organization was running the Sure, they're, they're getting very good at tunnels. So the mo it was more of a storage place until they finished it. And what's the worst thing about having pizza delivered to your house? Uh, the kids are there to eat it. Right. It can't just be you eating yeah. it, right? Part of it, is it cold? 
You want yeah. a hot pizza. Mm-hmm. Not wanting to risk the delivering of cold pizza ever again, Domino's has designed a car with a built-in oven behind the driver's seat. It took more than three years to develop the Delivery Expert, or the DXP, as Ooh. Domino's is calling it. It's based on a 2015 Chevy Spark. It was uh, configured so there's just room enough for the driver and up to 80 pizzas or side items, according to the LA Times report. That's a they, big oven. <laughs> the design is for the ve- the vehicle came from crowdsourcing competition, 30, or 385 submissions of plans and ideas. And they say over the next three months, 25 markets, including San Diego and Seattle, will get the cars. Wow. So we'll have built-in ovens if you prefer Domino's Pizza. Yeah, that means the driver will come to the door with dough on his hands and <laughs> I flour, just made the pizza in the car. <laughs> corn meal. Holy cow, your pizza's are red he's in my fli- back seat. He's flipping the dough as he's driving down the road. And, yeah. <laughs> That's great. Oh, great. I, you know what? Can I predict that in two years we have stories of uh, Domino Pizza trucks on fire? I will bet that the spark has sparked. Hey, here's a question for you. Do you um, have you noticed the elevating or escalating costs of health care? Are you seeing that? You know, we now have the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare. But uh, is, is it costing you less or is it costing you more? And are those costs going up or down? Apparently, somewhere we got to get control of healthcare costs. They're out of control. And we found a really cool story from the University of Utah where the university has figured out down to the minute what it costs to do certain procedures. And so they literally have hundreds of thousands of line items, actually 2 million rows, if you look at it, um, of different costs for their drugs, medical devices. And now as an organization... That provides a lot of health care. They can tell you exactly what your procedure costs. We're talking to an expert on it. Dr. Robert C. Pendleton will be joining us and teaching us a little bit about this innovative new way of managing costs and figuring out is what is the best care, and not even just the best care for the dollar, what is the best care in the end? We'll find out. Uh, Dr. Robert Pendleton will be joining us. Stick with us, folks. We're talking health care costs Next, right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, in the United States, inpatient hospital costs account for nearly 30% of health care, um, of, of healthcare, and it increases by about 2% per year. And in reality, do we even know what those costs are going to? Most healthcare organizations, I would venture to say, don't really know what any one procedure costs them. Because there's so many factors, right? I mean, you have to factor in the building, you have to factor in the surgical center, the doctor's Uh, wages. You have to factor in every sponge you use, all of the different costs, right? Well, the the University of Utah has uh, made it a goal to go figure out the detailed exact cost of each procedure, what things are costing them. And they needed to do it because of the the escalating health care costs and the reimbursement issues that go on with the Affordable Care Act. They're not making 
necessarily the same reimbursement on the procedures they're doing. So they've got to make sure they're at least breaking even because if not, it's going to cost us. And if it costs, if it costs a, a hospital, it's going to cost you. So we wanted to talk to uh, somebody about this. We, we t- found Dr. Robert C. Pendleton who happens to, uh, up at the University of Utah, he has a lot of different roles, but he is a a doctor of internal medicine there, an associate professor of medicine at the university, and also a co-director of the hospital group. He's the chief medical quality officer and is here today to talk to us about some of their interesting findings. Dr. Pendleton, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hi, Matt. Good morning. How are you? Great, great. So great to have you on, too. What a, what a big undertaking your, uh, your organization has done. How do you go about taking a major university, and, and which has so many different hospital uh, you know, procedures going on, so many different employees and doctors, how, how did you go about figuring out, and, and just talk about what you did to figure out basically the cost of, of health care? Okay. Well, I, you know, like you said in the in your comments a few minutes ago, that it, it's truly remarkable that in healthcare, a given hospital or clinic doesn't actually know what the cost is of the service that matters, and right. that is the cost of care to an individual patient. And so we took um, some building blocks that most hospitals have. Most hospitals know certain things like maybe what a surgical supply cost is or what their cost is of a particular medicine, but really needing to sort of tie those pieces together and leverage the electronic infrastructure that most hospitals have now to be able to figure out every single line item cost attributed to every single patient that comes through the system. Mm. And so it's really an exercise of capitalizing on the growth of electronic health records in hospital systems and the other sort of electronic or data infrastructure. So a goal, vision for what we need to do, and then uh, deploying a talented team to, to sort of figure out and execute on that. And it seems like what better place to do it than a university setting? Because, I mean, it seems like you've got more talent on the on that campus, to and and of all different sorts to help you figure this crazy detailed uh, this detailed activity. Two hundred million line items is that how many you ended up putting into the system? That's right. Yeah, exactly. Wow. So it's it's a mammoth undertaking. But I, but I think you're right. You know, academic medical centers have a role in really leading the transformation of healthcare and you know there are some of the brightest minds and talents um, but historically we haven't really channeled those talents towards efforts like this figuring out how do we define costs incurred and then outcomes achieved and at the end of the day that that's really what matters do patients get the best possible outcomes and are we providing the best stewardship of resources is it when what was the actual motivation? I mean, I guess I'm assuming the motivation is what you just said, um, best outcome and care. What other things were motivating this decision? It, did it have anything to do with, you know, the Affordable Health Care Act? Was was a different reimbursement than what you maybe were used to? Did that start to create some pressure to get this done or what drove the whole 
desire to get this done? I think all of the above, that there's no doubt that the national landscape um, is compelling in that we do have a cost crisis in, in health care nationally. And, you know, so health systems can have a choice. They can sit idly by and sort of take their chances of being able to survive in necessary change over the next few decades or you know, you can seize the opportunity and really um, try to figure out how to make our healthcare system better for patients and to do it in a way that um, is much more cost conscious. Hmm. And I, one other piece, there's an interesting analysis done by the Institute of Medicine a couple of years ago that I think added further fuel to the fire where they estimated in probably a conservative estimate that over $700 billion of healthcare spending is actually wasted. Oh. It's on unnecessary tests or procedures that don't actually help patients. And to sort of take that macro level problem, but actually give your doctors um, the information they need to fix it, you have to undergo this exercise where you're able to give doctors the actual cost of care of their decisions. Hmm. Well, and because and in, in this data set, there is a lot of important information for the doctor, right? And you can start – once you can start to see um, – I heard on a podcast your your CEO of the hospital there talk about just like hip replacement surgery – and you can find you can now see the differences between each different type of hip replacement and w- what device you use, and you can actually then track it to the outcomes of the patient and, and see if if this hip is better than this hip and what is the actual cost. And tell me what the doctors are seeing in the data. I think for the doctors, it provides the insights that that we'd want. I mean, most people who go into healthcare do so because they want to make a difference for their patient. Right. And having data, it allows a doctor like me and my in-the-hospital internal medicine practice to sort of look within my own practice and say, what, what were some of the reasons when things went really well for patients versus when things, maybe a patient was in the hospital longer than I expected? And to have the data to try to understand that within my own practice But then also our data tool allows us, say, for example, me to select three or four of my respected colleagues and Mm. say, wow, you know, one of my great colleagues who I respect, he's an outstanding doctor, he's actually keeping patients in the hospital half as long and his outcomes are better Mm. and sort of be able to say, well, why is that? and to be able to drill down into individual decisions that doctors make as they're caring for a patient and really learn from each other. I think a lot of this is providing an environment um, and a culture for physicians to learn from each other, which we believe is one of the fastest ways to drive improvement in healthcare. This And to me, this might be where a lot of people get uh, get worried because then are they thinking – but you're saying it would increase and improve health care. I wonder if some are worried that, oh, so you're just going to you're going to give me the the minimum standard guideline or you're going to do the, you know, the hip surgery that's the least expensive. Um, but that's not how you're using the data to just get the cheapest product out. You exactly. want the, the healthiest product out. Yep. That's 
you know, um, there's an old saying that um, cost is what, what you pay, but value is what you get. And so the tool that we have is really called value-driven outcomes, and it is all about improving value for patients, not mm. cost-cutting. That some cost-cutting, you know, is part of that waste, things that we do to patients, not with ill intentions, but because we don't have the data to know better that has no positive impact in a patient's course. Um, and so those are things that, yeah, we do want to uh, avoid patients undergoing those types of tests, procedures, x-rays, whatever it is, if it's not going to benefit them. Right. But to also have the insight, well, there may be some things we're actually spending more does lead to better outcomes, and that's equally important um, in in us being able to learn and understand those things. Because at the end of the day, it's not about cost kidding; it is about the best possible outcomes for our patients with the least amount of cost to get those outcomes. Well, and it's what an undertaking because the mere fact that you have now put in the two hundred million line items, which is uh, people. I mean, it sounds absurd, but. If if you just drove by the University of Utah Hospital, it kind of makes sense when you see how vast and and from pediatrics and uh, to orthopedics to um, all these different specialties you have uh, have up there. I also know that you know a big part of medicine is charting. Everything's charted anyway. Every scalpel's you know accounted for. Every cleaning service is watched for. So all of a sudden, you're charting anyway. I'm assuming the program's fairly you know, integrated into your chartings and everything else every doctor and nurse has to do anyway. So the accounting might even become easier over time. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I've been um, in practice at University of Utah for about 18 years, and it was just 10 years ago when our charting was in paper charts. Oh, yeah. And although there's been investment nationally and a lot of pain, if you talk to a lot of doctors about a transition to electronic health records, but having that clinical information in an electronic format is what allows us to start building innovations like this video tool that will help us realize our goal of delivering better care. Yeah. No, I think it's I think it's so fa- I mean it's so fascinating what's going on. And then eventually these records will be transferable to you, carried by you to hospital to hospital if if that needs be. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Robert C. Pendleton, and he is the chief medical quality officer at the University of Utah. He's talking about um a, a project that they have undertaken to get down to the exact costs of what it costs for, for example, one minute in the emergency room at the University of Utah. They can now tell you what one minute will cost you. They can tell you what a surgery will cost you, down to the minute and the time and per minute. And um, interesting information. When we come back, I want to talk to Dr. Pendleton about how this, other than just better care, I want to know how this will impact me as an individual, just our average listener what does it mean for me? Does it just mean the hospitals are going to make more money now, or am I going to see, um, you know, better care or lower costs? We'll find out. Stick with us, folks. We're talking uh, your health right here on the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back.
Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. We're talking about health care costs, hospital costs, and uh, joining us is Dr. Robert C. Pendleton, Chief Medical Quality Officer of the University of Utah Hospital and Clinics, co-director of the Hospitalist Group, and uh, an internal medicine doctor. And he's he's talking to us about some uh, pretty innovative work that they're doing at the University of Utah to actually account for what it costs to see a patient. In any area, I'm assuming, uh, we, they can check in and figure out exactly what it costs for every procedure, for every treatment, for everything that they're doing. And uh, it's really groundbreaking uh, work. And in fact, or other organizations like Harvard, the Mayo Clinic, they're, they're, they're checking into what's going on at the University of Utah to figure out why. And Dr. Pendleton's here to talk to us about it. Dr. Robert C. Pendleton, thanks again for being with us. Good to be here. I noticed on, um, a, on your website, um, I found a video of you teaching about this value-based uh, kind of health care, of increasing the value. And in there, you have a chart that basically talks about the U.S. healthcare performance scorecard which has so many like interesting little data points. For example, 440,000 people die a year of preventable healthcare-related deaths. One in two patients do not receive recommended care that they need. $210 billion is wasted annually on unnecessary services. And then you had another st- statistic of up to $700 billion totally could be wasted. Um, 5% of hospitalized patients will have medication-related adverse events. So the more data you have, I assume, and the more we're collecting the data, especially it doesn't always, it's not always just financial data. You're just getting all the data in one place, aren't you? Exactly right. It is taking advantage of this increasingly robust information that we have but being able to organize it in a way that helps us gain insights so that we can address and tackle problems, whether it's how safe care is delivered, how much the care costs, and maximizing the outcomes achieved. It's it's interesting. Um, So I have relatives, uh, two two brothers-in-law, that they're both um, radiologists. And diagnosing is is a big problem because it's i guess that's one of the main errors that are made in the medical industry is actually the actual diagnosis isn't it it is and um it was interesting just uh, i think 2 weeks ago institute of medicine put out a report really talking about how common and underrecognized diagnostic errors are in healthcare nationally and Again, that's going to be one more piece of of really integrating into our overall understanding of the care that that's delivered. What will this do for the average patient, um, Dr. Pendleton? As far as I mean, is it going to change my costs? Is it going to change how will how will it impact me? How does it impact your day to day patient? Yeah, I think that's that's a great question and. You know, one of the things that we know that is an output of changes in healthcare nationally and cha- and sort of some of the changes the Affordable Care Act is driving is that a typical patient is increasingly has more and more out-of-pocket expenses. And because of that, patients are going to um, move away from how we used to look for doctors or healthcare services, which is based solely by reputation, friends or families who may or may not have had a good experience. 
but the information is going to increasingly be available for patients to make informed decisions. And so it's this path towards transparency where we should be giving patients what is the price that they're going to pay for service rendered, and then within our best ability to, to predict what do we think the outcomes achieved are going to be. And so although we're not there yet, one of the major first sort of milestones in getting to that level of transparency for patients is an individual health system understanding the cost. Because if you don't know what your cost is, it's very difficult then to put out the the sort of price, if you will, for the consumer. Right. Is it um, because I assume that the University of Utah is getting ahead of the game because you're getting the cost structure down, you're getting your hands wrapped around it. But interestingly, none of your competitors, let's say, are to that level. So at first, they won't want to talk value-driven. But you can because you can say, look, we're giving the highest standard of care equal to any other care center, but we're able to do it at 30% less, which will be beneficial for you. So you're getting more for your money at this hospital. Um, How long do you think it will take before everybody's kind of getting on the same page and using a more value-based approach, or will it ever? Um, I I think it has to, um, and it will to what degree and how fast I think are really the questions. There will be some sort of high-level insights that certain payers like Medicare will will sort of start pushing out and giving patients more and more information. But at the end of the day, the onus will be on individual clinics or health systems to understand both their costs and outcomes and the service that they provide and then to increasingly make that transparent. Um, and, and I think it's something that we've talked about for you know more than a decade in healthcare. But I think the pace of acceleration and actually accomplishing that is happening pretty quickly. Hmm. So I think over the next five years, patients are going to see really a dramatic shift in the information that's available to them and in, in helping them make the best decisions. I mean, I guess that's the point, right? If you can keep the same standard of care, could it be feasible one day, Dr. Pendleton, that you have the exact same or even an improved standard of care with 30% less cost? Absolutely. I think that that is the range of things that we see when you have the data and you have an engaged provider group and team to then make things better that you can improve the outcomes and lower the cost by as much as 30%. Mm. So I I do think that's absolutely true. I mean, I know in some of the stuff we read, I read in preparation for this, that 20 to 50% of lab tests were just completely unnecessary anyway. Yeah. And again, it's, you know, medicine is sort of built on this craft-based construct where, you know, healthcare providers without any ill intent have sort of developed patterns or habits, if you will, of the things that they order and the tests that they um, have patients undergo without pulling back and, again, being able to understand what the cost implications are and then really looking at does it actually benefit patients. Mm. And there's always been this little dichotomy, it seems like, and it's probably a false one, where you're either a doctor or you're an accountant or a business administration guy. And it's it, you know, good doctors don't worry about the costs, and good business administration people don't know anything about medicine. Yeah, absolutely, and that's one of the one of the challenges. And you know, for us, what we see is you you, you really need 
to be able to see the world through both those lenses in yeah. order to maximize um, what we're doing for patients. Especially when you see that by by it's not about the money, but once you have the data, you can you can actually aggregate and gather the fact that some procedures, some simple diagnostic tests are unnecessary. And if we are saving 30% overall as a system, we can afford to spend a lot more money on you to get you healthy no matter what. Exactly right. And and I think the other part that probably gets talked about less as well is everything we do to patients has some degree of risk. Right. And if we're doing things and we're driving up costs with no benefit to the patient, but also we're exposing the patient to more risk, that's not a proposition right. that any of us want. And again, having the data starts to allow us to change that paradigm. So true. I mean, just how many times have you heard of you know a reaction or a medic a medic a medicine reaction, a reaction to medicine, or some other you know superbug or whatever that you got at the hospital just by having a simple procedure? If we don't have to do the procedure, let's not do it. Exactly right. It's just data, but we're so afraid of it. And then we get into the death panels and, oh, now they're going to have the accountants deciding what's best. But what I'm hearing from you is no matter what, the business people are going to check the numbers. And now we're just adding the actual medical side to it to actually evaluate what is the best value for the patient. Yeah, exactly. And and we believe that really physicians in particular um, have to lead this effort that, um, you know, doctors are the ones who understand the implications and understand what good outcomes are and what they mean to patients. And so if we can add the cost side to, to sort of the doctors and give them those tools, we really believe that, that that's our quickest path towards making the, the best possible difference. And I guess this also is accountability, right? You're accountable even more so in this system to other doctors who can see the numbers, to your peers. I mean, it just to me, it just cre- creates a more open system. Absolutely. And, and transparency is never a bad thing. You know, no. It really is the way that we collectively help each other get better. What do I do as we wrap this up, Dr. Pendleton? What do I do as the average guy, let's say in Vermont, my hospital doesn't have this, the data you do. What do I do personally to make sure my costs and my risk are mitigated, that I'm not overextending and I'm getting more value for my buck? I think as each, you know, every community, every hospital um, tackles this problem in their own way, and we learn from each other nationally, there's certainly a lot of things that can be done immediately and today. Um, For example, there are public campaigns, um, things like uh, something called Choosing Wisely, which is a national campaign that allows providers and consumers to start questioning certain things that we know actually drive up costs and are wasteful. So there are ways, there's information available now for both patients and providers in their communities to really start down this path of delivering better care uh, at lower costs, even while they're building their own sort of data infrastructure. Yeah. Well, we appreciate you and the and just leading out as a hospital. I think it's cool to be on the cutting edge of something this uh, this powerful and really keep up the great work. We'll, we'll be excited to have you back uh, once this is, you know, 
implemented by everyone in the country. That'll be the day, right? Dr. Robert C. Pendleton, thank you so much from the University of Utah. Again, he's the chief medical quality officer there at the University of Utah Hospital and Clinics and uh, is an internal medicine doctor. Pretty cool stuff. I mean, what a great time to live. I mean, eventually you'll be tra- you'll just put your records on a credit card with a chip, probably, and boom, you'll have everything you need. Keep it in your pocket. Or, hey, let's just implant it in your arm. Then they can just read it wherever you are. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you find the good in the world. Man, and it's in our healthcare system. Uh, more information, more transparency. We'll take a break. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. What a crazy thing when you think about it. I mean, when you go into a doctor, everyone's complaining because why does a pill cost $5 in a hospital if you're inside the hospital, but you can go buy, you can go get the same, you can go buy 150 pills for five bucks at Walmart. Well, one of the reasons is because you simply have to pay for more than the pill, right? Somebody had to build the building. Somebody had to pay for the property. Somebody had to sweep the floor, wax the floor. You had to have trucks, cars, all these things to get that pill there, and they could never account for it. But now, on when you're in the hospital, they can say, that pill cost us 32 cents. It's not a $5 pill anymore. However, you do have to pay a maintenance fee, which, I mean, not, not that they're going to have all these fees in there, but now they know... But having you in the hospital to give you that pill took four minutes of a nurse's time to go chart it, this much time, this much time, this much time, this much time, and they can actually now account for it all. Now, I know that just sounds absurd. Just give me the pill. Great. Well, before they didn't even know what it was costing them. That pill actually may have been costing them $28. Now they know the pill, two cents. The nurse to give it to you and chart it, $4. There's your cost. And I'm telling you, as a business person, it makes a difference when you finally know where your money's going. It also can tell you where you can invest. Now, the rub and the thing that scares us is what happens when they are actually, you know, decreasing the standard of care to save money. You know, you don't want want them saving money and scrimping on your hip. I need that hip. But one of the things they're finding out, too, is that they can actually compare all of the hips that they're putting in at a university now, and they can actually track the long-term care and how many more post-surgical visits you need, how much more rehab you need. They can track all of it and see which, for example, which uh, joints, which implants work better, which procedures cost more, and if you're going to do – a heart bypass, which bypass tends to have the highest success rate? Not just the cost. Now, it's important because it used to be that cost would be measured by one part of the hospital, and that part of the hospital would put a ton of pressure on the doctors. Now the doctors are getting the information, and they're going to find out what their coworkers are doing. How come you have a better rate of uh, shorter stays in the hospital, but just as healthy of people? It's just creating conversation. 
Anyway, folks, it's transparency. One of my favorite quotes is uh, a quote that says, um, the greatest disinfectant is light. Right? So if sometimes when you flip a rock over and you let the sunlight in, all of a sudden you see there's a lot of junk under that rock. Boy, there's a lot of, you know, bugs and worms and things growing under there. But eventually when the sunlight hits it, it's going to clean it up. It's going to disinfect it. And so maybe the best way to disinfect our healthcare system is to get some light in there by getting more information. What I think would be really powerful is publish it. Publish all this information so we know what the standard of care is so that we know what these numbers are. You really want to be transparent? Show us those numbers. By the way, back to Benghazi hearings, let's be more transparent. Let's have every hearing up there and let's put every transcript out there. You can even, you know, make sure we're not giving away secrets, but we need more transparency. We need more information. Um, And it doesn't mean it's going to make it easier, but it is going to give us a, a chance to make better decisions. Anyway, interesting stuff. We're bringing it to you so that you can live a healthier life. Just know that uh, you can also push from your side on better health care. We'll take a break, my friends. Come back a whole new hour next hour right here on The Matt Townsend Show. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend here, your life coach, your guide on the side. Happy Friday morning. Ah, you made it. An entire week. You made it. How cool is that? Hey, we uh, we got a great show for you today. We are going to be talking um, about the grandmother, what do we call it? The grandmother effect. Apparently, grandmas may have a lot more impact than any of us have ever known. Would you believe that it may be grandmothers that led to the spread of monogamy among our ancient ancestors. Grandmas, they may be the key, according to a professor. Could be. We'll be talking. It's, it's worth exploring. With Kristen Hawks. It's interesting when you read her, uh, her story about it, you're like, hmm. hmm. And it makes a lot of sense. It's very plausible. Very plausible. Anyway, uh, grandmothers shaping society. It's better than any sort of grandpa theory. Well, yeah. The grandpa theory, what is that? I hear a lot of grandpas because I'm about to be a grandpa. But I hear a lot of grandpas saying, I, I, don't, I really am better with the kids when they're older. My, my kid's grandpa sits in a chair and sleeps. So Really? That's really what he sees a grandpa. <laughs> he's always like, grandpa's asleep. I, go, I know he's tired, but he's asleep. I'm going to just wrestle with her. When, so I'm going to have a granddaughter. Yeah, be a fun grandpa. I'm going to, like, I, in one week, once she's born, we're wrestling. How are your knees? Do you feel okay? Oh, great. Okay. Well, they're bad. But... Okay. Because <laughs> that's the problem is you have to get down on their level. Yeah. And that's where the problem kind of comes in is your knees are shot and you can't do that. How how old can you be to put a to put someone in a full Nelson? Do they, can, can you, is it a year, six months? Ooh, when's it safe to put a toddler... Yeah, or an possibly, infant. Or an infant in the danger is probably going to wait till they're a little older. Hmm. 
Now, nice. I body slam my kid, but it's like on the oh, couch. Yeah. But it's that's fine. all for fun. And he's like, do it again. A mm-hmm. half Nelson, though, it's totally a free game. Well, so you can do it whenever. Yeah. Let's all be doing a half Nelson next week. <laughs> oh, it's so fun. We'll be talking to Dr. Kristen Hawks, uh, an anthropologist, about her research. Pretty interesting. Interesting stuff about grandmas. We'll get there. But uh, before we get to grandmas, um, I guess Hillary Clinton's a grandma. Yes. Benghazi. Is that her grand, We call that the Benghazi dodgy. She dodged it. She's oh, done. She's done. She made it through. It's over. In fact, I think she looked pretty good. She looked at times incredibly knowledgeable, informed, able, capable. Wow. I think she just set up 11 and a half hours of free time on all the major cable channels. They didn't have to do anything yesterday. Mm-mm. Now, I, apparently, I read somewhere Fox News was the first to turn away from wall-to-wall coverage. Oh, were they? To go back to their own normal programming about... Really? Yeah. Interesting. That seems weird because Fox News historically was talking more about Benghazi. The theory would be that now that they've heard several hours of what she had to say, they could now criticize instead mm. of just listening to continued testimony. Yeah. Wow, that's and they apparently did. That yeah, was the clips I saw. Several did people you, having an opinion. Did you hear about this? I'm just going to change the subject. Go ahead. You're going to get back to Hillary and all the news. Did you hear about the guy that can't play Sudoku? Yes. It's just tragic. It's now sad. Ben's a big Sudoku player. Have you noticed? He just plays all day. Does he? Yeah. He's got like seven Sudoku books. Wow. Anyway, a 25-year-old German skier survived an avalanche that buried him without oxygen for 15 minutes. By the way, this is maybe why Ben loves it, Uh, because if your brain's been deprived of oxygen. Anyway, anyway, his life was eventually saved, but he had been without oxygen for 15 minutes. And his buddy rescued him, gave him CPR, saved the guy, and – but the lack of oxygen to his body tissues and his brain took a toll – and the University of Munich researchers report that it manifested quite an unusual side effect. First, he developed muscle jerks brought on by walking and talking. And at one point in the hospital, he started a Sudoku puzzle, and the muscles in his left arm, which were not injured, began to spasm in what the doctors called clonic seizures. You know, I have something similar, except my leg falls asleep every time I play Sudoku. Really? Yeah. But you know what? You know why? Because you're going to the restroom. That's the deal. Yeah. I, I've, trust me, I'm a doctor. I know these things. I am in kind of a weird position when I play. Yeah. Try playing Sudoku standing. Yeah, they okay. won't fall asleep. But it's only one. That's weird. That's weird. <laughs> Experts say that there are some centers for mathematical mathematical concepts and other languages in your brain, and the authors have shown that some evidence uh, shows that the fibers connecting the centers were damaged. So every time this guy plays Sudoku now, he gets a little, uh, he gets a little epilepsy. It triggers his epilepsy. Isn't that unbelievable? One accident, and then the next thing you know, you, get, you, get a, you have a seizure every single time you're playing Sudoku. Anyway, consider yourself lucky, folks. It, life could be a lot worse. You could either you know, have survived a horrible disaster of an avalanche, or, and now, now you can't play Sudoku, or you could have been going to the Benghazi hearings. 
Uh, anyway, let's go to the headlines. Find out from Terry what's going on. Good morning, former Rhode Island governor and Senator uh, Lincoln Chafee, a long shot candidate in the Democratic presidential primary, plans to drop out of the race today. His campaign has announced Chafee will make a formal statement at a Democratic National Committee meeting downtown Washington later today, where he plans to say that, quote, after much thought, I have decided in my campaign for presidency today, or the president today, I would like to take this opportunity one last time to advocate for a chance to be given to peace. So it's worded Give awkwardly, and just I, just like Lincoln Chafee, kind of kind of it awkward. It makes you wonder, yeah, how he's, come he, he didn't do better in the race? He's a Republican turned Democrat, which is probably part of the problem. Kind of like uh, Jim Webb, you know, yeah. Virginia senator, who also dropped out earlier this week. They're dropping like flies. As we talked about, seven or it was nine p.m. Eastern is when the Benghazi hearings ended last night. Eleven hours of questioning for Hillary Clinton. Everything from her email to Cindy Blumenthal, one of her yeah. friends. Just a friend. Not advisor, an advisor. Not, but... Uh, so it goes on, all dealing with the ambassador, Chris Stevens, and three other men serving our country, dying in Libya. Mm. How do we prevent that from happening? Who's at fault, I guess, is kind of what they're looking for. Representative Elijah Cummings, a Democrat from Maryland, tore the Republicans at the outset of the, of the hearings. Uh, before the House Select Committee on Benghazi, immediately after Chairman Trey Gowdy finished an introductory statement that largely focused on a scandal surrounding Clinton's private email server, Cummings dismissed the hearing as a cynical political attack. The problem is that the Republican caucus did not like the answers they got from those investigations. So they set up this select committee with no rules, no deadline, and an unlimited budget. And they set them loose, Madam Secretary, because you're running for president. Clearly, it is possible to conduct a serious bipartisan investigation. What is impossible is for any reasonable person to continue denying that Republicans are squandering millions of taxpayer dollars on this abusive effort to derail Secretary Clinton's presidential campaign. Representative Cummings went on to call the hearing a fishing expedition. Donald Trump blamed a young intern for tweeting a negative comment about Iowa voters on Thursday. Earlier in the day, Trump accounted uh, his account favorably retweeted a message from user at my green hippo, which suggested that Ben Carson's Iowa primary lead was due to too much Monsanto in the corn, creating issues in the brain. <laughs> Iowa is the nation's leading corn producer and genetically modified crops. Pioneer Monsanto is a substantial presence in the state after political. Political watchers wondered whether Trump was wittingly taking a stab at, key, at a key primary state's mental capacity. Yeah, the candidate took to Twitter with a terse statement saying the young intern who accidentally did retweet apologizes. So his personal account, which he has said multiple times, it's all him. Yeah. He writes on this account. He's the one that's the voice. It's not somebody else right. writing for him. Something wrong goes out. It's instantly an intern. I got to get rid of that intern. So good luck with that. Interesting. Yeah, Don. Finally. Yeah. There is a statue in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Vladimir Lenin, right? Because yeah. it used to be a yeah. communist bloc nation. These statues are all over Eastern Europe. There is a, a law that was put out in Ukraine in March of a decommunization of the state. Get right? rid of the Lenin so statue. So they're trying to get rid of all the imagery, all this stuff that's you know held over from Cold War era type stuff. Well, as they're going through, there's this statue in one of these, one in a, in a town outside of uh, Odessa, one of the cities in Ukraine, and they wanted just to pull the statue down. But then an artist came in and said, "Wait, wait, wait! I got a better idea." So he either chiseled, carved, or remachined the face into Darth Vader, 
Wow. And then put a Wi-Fi router in the head so that everyone gets free Wi-Fi from the former linen statue that now looks like Darth Vader. Well, that's creative. Wait it's a, till it's a thing. Wait till Putin gets there. That's right, because they may take it back over. Oh, that. that's going to get ugly. And he'll take the internet away. So there you go. There's a Darth Vader statue with Wi-Fi in it. Wow. Lenin would be so proud. Not. Hey, um, interesting stuff. We're going to uh, go to another topic. Um, in just a minute, we'll be bringing on Dr. Kristen Hawks, who is an anthropologist from the University of Utah. She's going to be teaching us about what's called the grandmother hypothesis, which talks, uh, which will set up a lot of our social relationships, how we tend to deal with each other as families, even monogamy might all be tracked back to grandmothers and the, the powerful role grandmothers have played as, uh, through the years as, as we've been evolving as families and people. So stick with us. This is going to be an interesting subject. Dr. Kristen Hawks will be joining us. Um, grandmas, get ready and unite. This may be the day of power for grandmas. Stick with us. Learning, doing everything we can to help you uh, live, love, live and uh, love stronger. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, what are your memories from your grandma? Does she make the best chocolate chip cookies? Is your motto what happens at grandma's stays at grandma's? And have you ever wondered why grandma is the way she is? Why she's always stuffing you with food? It may surprise you to learn that it has a whole lot to do with the perpetuation of grandma's genes. According to our next guest, Dr. Kristen Hawks, a distinguished professor at the University of Utah in the Department of Anthropology, she um, has put together... Uh, what uh, they're calling the grandma hypothesis, and she's here to teach us about uh, how grandmothers really have made the world go around. Dr. Kristen Hawks, welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you very much. Great to have you on, and I, I'm fascinated by this work of yours. Um, you you talk about the grandma hypothesis. What do you mean? G- get into your research and, and let us know what you're learning about the impact of grandmas. Well, you'll have to stop me because once I get started, I can just go on and on. <laughs> That's good. That actually makes good radio a lot um, of times. Yeah. Well, maybe I can start with we we're, we belong to the order primates. You know, we belong yeah. to this radiation of monkeys and apes, and we belong to the radiation of the great apes. So they're our closest living relatives. We're all hominids. So chimpanzees, bonobos, gorillas, orangutans, they're our closest relatives. Now they have relatively slow life histories compared to the other primates. But then there's us. Hmm. And we have these much longer lifespans and we get takes us a lot longer to get to be adults and we're dependent a lot, a lot longer so the thing that sticks out that's different or one of the things i guess we could make a pretty long list um about us is our longevity and yet the end of female fertility is essentially the same age in all of us it comes to an end in the in the 40s for huh. Um, for women, for uh, female um, great apes. 
so when we're trying to explain how we got this life history we got, um, using both data from what we see when we look at especially people who are living on wild foods, because there are some some places where people still do that. Really, so yeah. To solve the problem of, you know, what's on the table for dinner every day in a way that's that's really ancient, because right. agriculture is so recent in um you know, if you take the long view, though nobody had domestic, depended on domesticated resources until the last 10,000 years. Yeah, you weren't going to the garden. You were not. There was no 7-Eleven. You know, <laughs> you couldn't go milk the cow or get those eggs from the chicken. So you had to go right? forage, right, and, and find it. <laughs> you, that. you did. And, and actually, it took us a long time to put these pieces together, but a set of key observations came from work we were doing with people who were living on wild foods in, in uh, northern Tanzania, in a part of East Africa where we have this really long uh, archaeological and paleontological record of our lineage. So this is a, it, although we are no longer in the Pleistocene, it's a it's a kind of environment that's about the closest analog we've got to um, the kind of environment that our ancestors hmm. um, evolved in. And we were studying how people solve those problems. You know how they how they actually make a living. And we were especially interested, of course, initially in uh, hunting because the standard story about what happened in our lineage is that um, drying environments uh, meant that um, hominid populations that were living in these spreading savannas uh, had to be eating different things because the foods in the forest were were retreating and it was a better deal to hunt than than to live on plant foods. And um, so moms did better to depend on hunting mates and um, uh, pay attention to their really much more dependent children. And as a consequence, we got these nuclear families that we're all familiar with. So monogamy was about hunting. Mom and dad and and the kids, and dad goes off and brings home the bacon, and mom takes care of the kids. You know, that's a story we're all familiar with yeah. and that that kind of story is one that that um it actually has a long history of of that that idea about our evolution but it really got elaborated in the middle of the last century in ways that seemed really to um account for uh, what we see in with all kinds of lines of evidence, um, what we see in the archaeology, what we see in the fossil record, what we see when we compare us to the other living primates, hmm. what we see when we look at the paleoecology, all these things. Um, uh, so we were we were really especially interested in in uh, what the kind of archaeological record looks like that gets formed when people are hunting the big animals, which is. You know what? What these Hadza folk, Hadza men—they're really um, very active hunters and scavengers of big animals. So there, there are other hunters in the neighborhood. You know, lions, hyenas, right. leopards, and so on. And they're really good at taking away carcasses from from uh, the, the other others. Hunters. But they're also very effective hunters. And so, looking at the kinds of archaeological sites that are formed by um, the, 
carrying out that kind of, of uh, foraging activity was part of what we were, we were looking at, uh, and especially because there were lots of arguments in the literature about uh, what the earliest archaeology actually told us about the behavior of the ancestral populations that produced it. And um, so <laughs> I can go off into what we learned about the archaeology, which was so amazing because these guys are very good hunters, but these big animals, um, if, when, because they're really focused on the big animals, their success per day, so oh. the average capture of a big carcass, so this would include scavenging as well as hunting, the average success per hunter per day was only 3.4%. Oh, wow. So most days you, you weren't zilch. Yeah, you weren't eating for a long time. If, if that was what you depended on, yeah. right, you would be in a serious trouble. And not only that, but when they got one, oh, well, they had to split it's it. a huge pile of meat, of course. Yeah. And so everybody comes <laughs> yeah. to take advantage. So so this is a, not a good way to bring home the bacon to the, to the wife and kids. Right, you know? right. Um, you, you rarely succeed, and most of it goes to somebody else when you do. And we hadn't initially been especially focused on thinking about what about the old ladies, you know, mm-hmm. which were not, uh, had not come in thinking that was going to be important. But, but there it was in our data because we were, um, the kind of data collection we were doing meant we wanted to pay attention to everybody, all ages and sexes, how they were spending their time, what they got for it. And uh, the, these, these old women, we estimated initially, and then my, my collaborator, Nick Blurton-Jones, who, who has been elaborating the demography, um, has, has now confirmed all these age estimates that we initially made, that we thought these women were at least in their middle 60s, and they were. Oh, wow. They were major contributors to what ended up on the dinner table at night. They were absolutely critical and uh, really actively producing this kind of, of uh, resource that is, takes a lot of effort. So the, um, the, the plant staple, the carbohydrate staple for these guys during all seasons is this deeply buried tuber, an underground storage organ, you know, potato-like yeah. thing. Right. Um, and uh, the plant that uh, makes the ones that they think fill them up the best is really likes to put its roots down into the rocks. And so it, it can be down to really more than a meter and a half. So there can be some really heavy-duty digging with, with the digging sticks they use. And um, these, these old ladies are wow. <laughs> doing that. And although another surprise to us was that the little kids were very active foragers. We hadn't gone in expecting that. But at that resource, they're terrible, you know, because yeah. they're a little bitty. Right, so yeah, they can't dig. and They just can't do it. They're not strong enough. I mean, they give it a shot, and there are some kinds of tubers they're, they're not bad at. Um, but while they're good at things like berries, you know, although they have little hands, they're, they're, they can manage those. But yeah. the resources that are really important, these deeply buried tubers, they just can't cover their own requirements and so let, uh, let me get this all straight though Kristen so the the men I'm assuming even the grandpas and the dads would go out hunting big game or stealing animals from other 
animals. You got it. And then they'd bring back meat, uh, what, once every month? That's for yeah. If we if we look at the rates per individual guy, that's right. It's about and they go every day, right? So yeah. It's about one success a month. Oh, that's crazy! And they bring back a lot of protein, and it's like a big barbecue. Yeah, and in fact, actually, when there is one of those one of those big carcasses, everybody goes to the kill. Oh yeah. Oh, you everyone go. They don't even bring it back. Yeah, you can't carry it back a big kill. Well, everybody eats at the kill and then carries. You know, <laughs> whatever's left. A lot. Yeah. Which the... They carry back, and and all of that produces archaeology, which, oh, which wow. we we're tracking. So my my collaborator Jim O'Connell, who's on on the faculty here, um, was was paying special attention to because he is an archaeologist to what the archaeology looked like. Um, but but what we what we found with um, the. Uh, the role that these old ladies were playing, um, eventually, you know, we tumbled to this because our data showed that how well kids wean children were growing depended on their mother's work until she had a new baby. Yeah, then she her hands were full. Yeah, her hands were full. Oh, but then grandma's out and doing tubing, tubering, whatever the exactly. word is. Exactly. So she'd so she'd take them out. They'd kind of forage, maybe get berries while grandma's digging tubers. Right. Well, actually, she wouldn't even necessarily take them out. Um, but yes, that's another interesting pattern that that moms would often go to the berry bushes. Because that's a place yeah. where the little kids could be pretty good. Yeah. So the kids would feed themselves and actually take them on these, it turned out, you know, really, really long trips. Wow. Um, but they did pretty well in the berries, but not so well on these this this really key starch staple. And that was and as soon as mom had new babies, then then it was it was grandmother's work that was really critical. Well then and grandma then, would so, bring back a tuber and the starving men were probably loving well, they that. Took, they took plenty of advantage. Of yeah. Them. Well, and that kept grandma alive, probably. Yeah. Well, right. I so, mean, for her health reasons, but also just she was adding to the tribe or the group. Well, and so putting together these observations and some some theory about why life histories vary the way they do. And, and I mean, you know, when I was talking about how apes have relatively slow life histories, yeah. so long adult lifespans, mature late, kids are dependent longer. That, that That's true of, of apes versus monkeys, but it's whoa, even more true of us, right? So um, when we look at these models to try and explain why life histories it vary that way. Why, why evolution pushes them around? Uh, a model that was really uh, key for the grandmother hypothesis is one that was developed by um, a theoretical biologist who was here at Utah at the time. Very, very influential on me, uh, Eric Charnov, and uh, his his uh, model explained all these uh, why why these life history features went together the way they did but the thing that ran the show was average adult lifespan it was adult mortality and so the thing then if we compare us to the other great apes that sticks out is our much lower adult mortality our much longer adult lifespans and that's in in Charnov's model that's what drives all these other pieces and so what would favor lower mortality in us? That's where the grandmother hypothesis comes in. And so our, our model uh, pointed toward 
something like this with an ancestral life history like the other great apes, which, and it's likely that's what we had because they all have that and they're our closest relatives. But under those ecological circumstances where, where you're going to be depending on these deeply buried tubers, then that there is a there is a problem for moms that's brand new because for the other apes when when a, a um, an infant is weaned it feeds itself yeah but now uh, in a in an ecological context where the resources that are important are things kids can't actually feed themselves on mm-hmm. so this is really a stretch for moms well now there is a thing that older females who are just about at the end of their fertility, um, and in fact, in the other apes, most females are dying while they're still fertile. They get huh. to be old while, and have all these geriatric symptoms while they're still cycling. Oh, wow. The few females who were still around as their fertility was, was, was uh, coming to an end, now they could do something for their fitness yeah. that's entirely new if they subsidized their daughters, if they, if they uh, foraged in ways that then fed uh, the, the, the kids that yeah. their daughters had weaned, then the daughters could move on and have new babies sooner. Interesting. So those females mm-hmm. who were slightly had, had mutations associated with slightly increased longevity, they now had a fitness advantage, which meant their, I'm, I have air quotes around this, <laughs> I'm about to say longevity genes, right? Yeah, right. And we want to know what are those, but at any rate, the, the females that had those mutations now would be the ones whose daughters would also have them, who could, who would get more help from hmm. their mothers who could have uh, kids faster, they would end up with more descendants. Wow. And through that pathway, selection would favor um, increased longevity and slower aging as a consequence of the effect that grandmothers have on the number of descendants that they produce under those ecological circumstances. So the grandmother hypothesis puts all those pieces together to explain why we have this weird life history. It's fascinating, and it's... um Wow. I mean, there's so much to it. I want to unfold more of it. Let's do this, Kristen. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Kristen Hawks, who's a distinguished faculty member at the University of Utah in the Department of Anthropology. She's teaching us about the 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 hypothesis of grandmas and how it they really have helped us elongate our, our lifespan, our living cycle um, by simply finding the important role that they could play um, of, of feeding, feeding children and uh, allowing their daughters to, to have even more children. Powerful stuff. Um, anyway, uh, we're, we're going to be unfolding it a little bit more and try to understand what it means to us uh, today. And, and also even I want to get into grandfathers. What, what were they doing? And uh, also find out a little bit more about monogamy because that also became you know important because if you hunt together, you'd survive together, apparently. We'll take a break, folks. More with Dr. Kristen Hawks uh, when we come back. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Clapped in church on Sunday morning. Grandma's hands played a tambourine so well. Grandma's hands. 
Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Would you believe the reason humans live so much longer than the rest of the primates? It might have a lot to do with grandma, folks. Grandma's hands right there and grandma's ability to dig tubers, which, uh, you know, was the great, uh, I guess, starch that they needed, the great carbohydrate to get in between, to eat in between all those big monthly steak fests or whatever they're eating, meat fests. Joining us, um, and I'm sure I'm just ruining it for her because she's such a professional, Dr. Kristen Hawks, who is a distinguished professor of anthropology at the University of Utah. But she's, I love her excitement. And uh, she's here today to help us understand this grandma hypothesis that grandmas may be one of the great reasons, folks, that we live as long as we do, that we live uh, kind of monogamous relationships, maybe uh, the survival, really, of a, a grandma being able to to uh, keep feeding a family. And mom was then allowed historically to keep making babies. And it created this little family nuclear kind of unit we've we see. Dr. Kristen Hawks, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thank you. I love I love your enthusiasm because you, and you're so dang smart. The rest of us are trying to keep up with you. But um teach us what else we what else I mean it makes sense, doesn't it? That having another set of hands to feed um and it's not like well, it's you don't get the sense I I don't hear that grandma was like babysitting, but I guess she would care for the child if it got hurt, the older child. Right. Well, so there, once once we've got these pieces of life history in the story, it turns out to have so many other consequences, and and uh, one of them is that with the this this life history shift, so these these lower adult mortality, longer adult lifespans, later ages at maturity, and kids are dependent longer, but not just on mom. Right. But that sets up uh, a thing that has huge consequences for both for moms and for infants that points to uh, um, a way to understand another thing that's really unusual about us compared to our closest living relatives, you know, the other great apes, yeah. so that now it's the case that uh, when um, mom has this new baby, she's also got these other kids who are not fully independent. Grandmother's subsidies are key, but unlike another ape mother, and actually mammal mothers in general, um, it's not the case that this current infant is the only dependent for her to worry about. So if, if I'm a chimpanzee mom, I have a, a baby, and when I finally wean it, it feeds itself, right. and I can have another. Well, in humans, I um, have this baby, and I wean it, and now grandmother subsidizes the the requirements of this still dependent kid who is weaned and I have another but that now means I have more than one at a time uh-huh. and that means I have to allocate think how do I allocate my attention Interesting, among right? all these so there's a there's a new set of problems for moms right. which then selection is going to affect moms that are better at managing that are going to be the ones who turn out to be our ancestors you know they're right. the ones that had the most descendants 
And that puts a new kind of selection pressure on infants. So if I'm a chimpanzee infant, I come into the world and, you know, mom, I'm her only kid, you know. Right, she's right. fully attentive to me, nothing. I mean, she's she's a working mom, right? She has to feed herself mm-hmm. and all these things. So, But I am the only kid she worries about. So I don't have to do anything. Yeah. I am, you know, I've got her full commitment. But now... Now, when we've got the kind of life history we have, I can't guarantee it is not the case that mom's full attention is just on this mm. new infant, and that puts selection pressure on infants. Yeah. So even though our infants are, you know, you think about babies, they are, they seem like they can't do anything at all, right. you know, and, are, and are, we generally characterize them as quote, altricial, a word to mean how, how helpless they are. And physically, they're very helpless. But our babies are amazingly socially attentive. Hmm. And they uh, do things that other eight babies don't do. And selection has favored doing this, being active at engaging the attention of their moms, wow. engaging the attention of other caretakers, doing the kinds of things that will say, pay attention to me, mom, see how cute I am, look, yeah. I'm smiling at you, am I not just yeah. wonderful? Doing, I mean, those of you that have babies oh, yeah. or no babies. They open their eyes out. a little wider, you know, it's oh, like they're, they're, they're drawing you in. They draw you in, they mm-hmm. are so... So a whole array of things about the, our characteristic sociality where we are, we like so much to be on the same page with somebody else. Mm. You know, that, that's actually what I'm trying to pull off on, on the telephone. I don't actually have you in front yeah, of me. Yeah, it's hard. I would love to see your face, though. Are you attending <laughs> to me? Are we all? Yeah. Can, do you understand what I'm saying? Can you see the... Story, so it made us more social, huh? It made us yeah. more and and more attuned to the social network and to caring about that. So that becomes ah, so important. Right. So now you're more caring. What other people think of us and and being being uh, on the same, doing things with other people and and sharing their goals. And we we that is for us uh, hugely important. Hmm. It's 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 where we get so much of our satisfaction. So we have this this set of social capacities, which, you know, in the way I'm, according to the hypothesis here, this this set of things was selected in our lineage and not in the other apes because of this life history, because of these grandmother effects. And then... Uh, in addition, you know, I mean, this is a long list of yeah. consequences that, that follow from from having this grandmothering life history. It has a real important implication on um, what happens as, as individuals grow up. They've got these capacities for shared intentionality, these appetites for them. And so the our little kids grow up and they become adults and they're sexually mature and they're ready to produce descendants themselves, have offspring. Now, in most mammals, it is the case that at any one time, there are more fertile females than there are fertile males. Hmm. And that's a big piece of that is that males do all kinds of really dangerous and yeah. silly things, and they beat up on each other. And, <laughs> and we fight. Yeah, right. Yeah, this is a mammalian story, so mortality is higher. There are fewer of them. 
And in our closest living relatives, um, what happens is uh, the, there are more females than there are males, and males mate with lots of different females. And for another set of reasons that we could talk about, females mate with all the males in the in the social group. But it is a characteristic in lots of animals as we look across the tree of life. If it is the case that there are not not fewer males, fewer fertile males than fertile females, but more fertile males than there are fertile females, then the payoff strategy for males is to try, once they manage to get a mate, to guard that mate. Uh, because trying to move on to another one, there's a lot of competition out yeah, there. Yeah, keep the one you're with, so, yeah. Yeah, so a bird in the hand is really to Interesting. And what happens as a consequence of this grandmothering life history is that Lifespans are are getting longer, but the age that female fertility ends is not changing. Hmm. It's it's remaining where it is for the other great apes. Fertility is essentially over in the 40s. But now there are all these old guys who are still fertile, and so very unusual for a primate. In in humans, there are more fertile males at any one time than there are fertile oh, females. Oh, true. And now I'm talking about the actual sex ratio, not yeah. the operational right. sex ratio, which is a which is a really also an interesting story. That's always male bias. Oh, that's so primates. true. So we uh, we uh, weird. Yeah. All right. So now what's going on among the males is a kind of competition among males that includes these old guys and the young guys are uh, always behind in a sense. The old guys have already established their relationships and their position in the social order and so on. And so the young guys are in a sense um, stuck having to really worry about what the old guys think of them. Right. Uh, they also have to worry about what the other guys think of them because these alliances among males are really important in how well the the, the males are going to do. If they do manage to make a claim on a mate, their success at doing that depends on whether the other guys let them get away with oh, it. Oh, man. Right. So, and whether they allow him to hang on to her. Right? So, let me ask you this, Kristen. We only have about a minute left, but what? So, so really, so it's about. It really has then solidified the monog. I mean, the, the hypothesis is that it's solidified monogamy. It's solidified right. um, the uh, longevity and lifespan and lower mortality rates. In the end, like, I guess, I guess you're still. This is still a hypothesis. It is still a hypothesis. And yet we we enjoy the fruits of it, I guess, now. Is is this something that will continue to change and evolve over time? Well, I need to I need to say just a sentence or two about the monogamy thing, this pair bonding habit that we have. This is anthropologists looking at people in all kinds of cultures all over the world. This is a thing that 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 living people do, right? And, right. And it really distinguishes us from our closest living relatives. They don't do that. It's actually an unusual thing for mammals to do. Mm-hmm. So here's a hypothesis about about why we do it. But those pair bonds are are widely variable 
in how long they last. Okay. Um, they are, they are uh, whether they're exclusive, uh, often they're not. Some, they can be short. It's even possible to have more than one at the same time. Yeah. So there's enormous variation in those. But there are some regularities in how fragile those pair bonds are that, that also uh, are correlated with the, 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 the sex ratio. So although oh, yeah. the... Um, when, when we look at our hunter-gatherer sample, it's it's so different from the living great apes in being extremely male-biased um, sex ratio in the fertile ages, where it's the other way around in in chimpanzees. Mm. Uh, the more male-biased it is, the stronger the pair bonds. Oh, okay. and uh, when it is slightly less male-biased, still male-biased, but slightly less. So they're relatively more females. Uh-huh. Then those pair bonds are not so strong, and so so there there are a whole oh, array of regularities. Once we've started to focus on this, that um, look like they may, might fall yeah. into place. Oh, actually, Kristen, they're social scientists and and anthropologists not coming at it from this. Um, grandmothering perspective, but just looking at the variation, have talked about the sex ratio and the mating ages as having important consequences for how uh, stable um, family units are. Yeah, especially so, going so forward. A lot of pieces of what we want to understand yeah. about ourselves and the way we, the way behavior varies uh, from from one uh, time in history or one uh, social context to another professor we appreciate you I, we've got to catch off we've got a break we got to take but oh love the research and the insight oh thanks Matt. and seriously truly um enlightening and what a great idea i mean look at how much we take for granted um just in life and what we don't know and and yet how we came to be who we are powerful stuff folks we'll take a break we'll continue the discussion in just a minute this is the matt townsend show we'll be right back Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Fascinating. Isn't it crazy? Um, I love bringing on just experts that know what they're talking about. And you could tell with uh, Dr. Kristen Hawks. I mean, she knows what she's talking about. And, you know, hopefully that didn't go over everybody's head, but it went over mine. Um, But there's just interesting stuff when you think about it. When there's more men um, and, and, and and they're more dominant men to women ratio, they have to be more, um, what's the word? Monogamy is the choice because they've got to, they've got to, they're competing with other men. And one of the things, a lot of stories that have come out recently, and I'm sure this, you know, evolutionarily, this wouldn't jive with Kristen, I'm sure. But, you know, there's a lot of uh, fewer men in, in religion today. So if you're a woman and you want to marry somebody that's in your church or your religion or your faith group, if there's fewer men, then um, I wonder if the inverse is true, that maybe if there's fewer men, there's not as much competition, which means there might be more promiscuity, there might be more um, willingness to maybe not marry somebody in your church group or your your value system simply because you want to have kids. So you're, it's it's easier maybe to marry somebody in your faith when there's more men to women ratio. 
anyway, it's interesting. And it also just teaches you, grandmas, you played an incredible role, uh, you little tuber diggers. <laughs> That's what I'm going to start calling my mom, a tuber digger. But uh, powerful stuff. Really, especially I'm about to be a grandpa, and um, I just think, wow, we play an important role. And you also think about how lucky and blessed you are to be a human today, not just a hominid that was back digging tubers. Now I can take care of my grandkids and play a grandpa role and help my daughter, you know, carry on her role. Fascinating stuff, folks. Interesting. That's why we bring you the show, to give you the latest and greatest ideas so you can live stronger and, uh, and longer. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a break. Back next hour. More tools, more ideas to help you find the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program. It's the show where we give you the tools, the information, you need to live longer, love stronger, have a better life for you and your family. Hey, today uh, we're going to be talking movies with Rod Gustafson, some uh, new releases that are going to be out, and we'll check in on that. And then we're going to do a little Meet the Producers segment. I believe it's just going to be uh, Kaylee. And Liz. Kaylee and Liz. There you go. Will be, uh, Kaylee eats really healthy, but I don't think it's very good. No. It doesn't taste good. No. So they're going to try to show me that you can eat healthier, better, whole food-ish, and it can taste good. Mm, okay. Uh, highly doubt it. Because if that's, the, if that's the truth, you don't think Twinkies would be all over that? You don't think the Keebler Elves would be pounding out yummy quinoa crackers? Right. Yeah. No, it's a cookie with chocolate. There you go. That's right. Shortbread and chocolate. We're going to see if they can convince me on that one. So we'll be talking. Uh, Sounds like you're already convinced the I'm, other way. Uh, well, we'll see. They better bring food if they oh, want to change the deal. It's out there. I've seen it. Is it? Does it look good? Sure. But like with most things that, that Kaylee has brought in, on the outside, the outer shell looks okay. Looks great. The inside is a, a nightmare of kale and uh, gluten-free. Do you remember when she <laughs> brought kale chips? Yes. That was... I'm still trying to get that taste out of my mouth. And the smell? Oh, yeah. Oh. Do you remember? I'm not even sure if that was actually what that was. I don't either. Did she just go in the backyard, grab some weeds, and I didn't toss even know what oven? kale was. It's just, oh. She said she found it on the side of the road. Kale is that stuff that's on the salad bar that you're not supposed to eat. That's right. The stuff that's on the ice. It's the decoration. Right. Yeah. You don't eat that. And now people just start eating it because... You know what? It's an accident. One person has an accident. They accidentally put kale in the on their salad, and they're like, oh. Oh, this is tolerable. Yeah. You don't do that. There's a yeah. lot of things at the salad bar you shouldn't eat. Right. <laughs> it's a salad bar, for heaven's sakes. Hey, did you hear about this guy? This guy totally reminded me of you, Ben. Um, a man gets a DUI on a motorized wheelchair at the, grass, at the grocery store. Georgia law says it's illegal to operate any moving vehicle while under the influence of alcohol or drugs. As a man learned last week, that includes motorized wheelchairs. 
Danny Wayne Mitchell, 48, was cited Friday for DUI and public drunk following an incident outside a grocery store. (laughs) According to the incident report, police were called to the scene after an SUV hit his Rascal 300 scooter. It's a good model. So the SUV hit his scooter. Yeah. Responding officers found a disheveled Mitchell backing into the building and over plants in his wheelchair. Mitchell submitted to a breath test, the results of which were redacted from the incident report. He was cited and taken to the hospital. Mitchell says he was at a grocery store Friday to get a prescription filled. Needed his meds. Yeah. Once, I mean, you know there's a problem. Once you're like backing your jazzy. Rascal. Rascal. Yeah. Out of the bushes. Yeah. Once you've you've run over the potted plants (laughs) and you're (laughs) knocking over displays possibly. Sir, I'm going to need you to pull over. Yeah. No, I'm going home. No, you're going to need to pull over or I'm going to have to tase you off your jazzy. You rascal. You little rascal. Anyway, today, by the way, is National Boston Cream Pie Day. Which I believe it says in there is actually a cake. Yeah. Oh, but it's good. Isn't that good? Chocolate. Mm. Mm, cream. Oh, yum, 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 yum. I wonder if she's going to do a healthy Boston cream pie. Mm, I don't believe that's what that is. Doubt it. Bummer. Anyway, Boston Cream Pie Day and also iPod Day. People still have iPods, huh? A lot of people like it. It, it, it serves one purpose. It does it well. They enjoy it. Nails it. You don't have to buy an expensive phone so you can have your music with you. You have your iPod. That's right. Bada I have the bing. original Shuffle. Do you? It's about as yeah. big as a pack of gum. Uh-huh. Yeah. I oh, still yeah. use that. works well. Yeah, it's all you need. I load like, what, it's like 200, 250 songs and yeah. go for a run. What a guy. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I'd like to see you do the shuffle. No. It's do a, the shuffle. No, it's okay. You don't want to? No. No dancing. Oh, that would have been so good. There's no natural rhythm. Mm-hmm. There's um, the light feet that are needed. I tend to clop around and, yeah. and stomp around. It's uh-huh. not. There's no real uh, agility, no coordination. Yeah. So dancing really isn't something I'm going to do. No, but you're in great shape. Well, I mean that from my heart. <laughs> hey, uh, Hillary Clinton dodged the Benghazi deal, did a great job, I think. She really, she looked very presidential. She had good hair versus the last time she yeah. uh, she appeared had kind of scraggly Yeah, that was hair. hard. Ben, uh, oh no, Paul Ryan, he's in. He's he's running. He's Which basically says, okay, I'll be the speaker. Yeah, fine. I'll I mean, a running, he's, he's, he's the only guy running. And he'll be the speaker. He's not the only one running. Well, there's, yeah, the other guy that Webster is it that. Actually, there's a couple other people. Yeah. They don't, they don't have a shot. But they're, yeah, Paul Ryan's the guy. I mean, it's like, it's, it's even, he's even more dominant than Hillary. But as I found out, this yeah. says a new poll finds that 64% of Republicans and 74% of independent voters would prefer the next speaker to be selected from outside of Congress. Oh, now, yeah. This doesn't matter because they're looking at voters. For the poll, but members of Congress is who matters. But, but the people would rather. But I bet if we else. went to that poll and asked them who the new speaker should yeah. be, do you know who it would be? Who? Ellen DeGeneres. There you go. Boom. She'd, She'd be, be fantastic. She could dance. Wouldn't that be she great? She could crack a joke. Mr. Speaker. She'd, she'd dance her way into the. Oh, that would be great. Yeah, she'd, she'd dance a, up and down the aisles, get everyone song, dancing. New song of the day. I think it would drive. I think have, it would make people happier. Have that guy like announce like it's the State yeah. of the Union? Yeah. <laughs> Co- that's his hype. That would be her hype guy. Yeah. Just to get, yeah. get the get the get house the, up get on the, the feet. Get the crowd loose. Get them going. 
<laughs> that's great. Well, all right. Uh, so that's my vote. Ellen DeGeneres for Speaker of the House. Let's go uh, to the headlines, find out what's going on around the world. After 11 hours of uh, Benghazi hearing featuring Hillary Clinton covering everything from her email correspondence with friend Sidney Blumenthal to her Libya policy as Secretary of State to efforts to rescue Ambassador Chris Stevens. I have been racking my brain about what more could have been done or should have been done. And so when I took responsibility, I took it as a challenge and an obligation to make sure before I left the State Department, I said, okay, what must we do better? That was seen as one of her more authentic moments during the 11 hours of Yeah, she seemed like she was really emotional. And While that was all going on over in the House chamber, United States Capitol Police detained and charged a man named Larry Dawson with unlawful conduct and assault on a police officer after an outburst in the U.S. House chamber Thursday afternoon. In between a few congressmen speaking, Dawson was heard shouting that he is a prophet of God. Oh. He was then escorted away by police. You're not supposed to talk. Yeah, no. You can sit in that. It's an upper balcony above what's going on, and you're not supposed to say anything. Um, So he was escorted (laughs) out, which probably is when he assaulted a police officer. Yeah. So. Well, I mean, do do prophets of God assault police officers? Um, I have not read of any recently. I don't remember that in the Bible. So, there's that. Uh, former Rhode Island Governor and Senator Lincoln Chafee, long shot for the Democratic presidential primary, plans to drop out of the race later today, his campaign has really? announced. So, he'll be out. Huh. Goodbye, Lincoln Chafee. We barely knew you. Isn't that sad? I mean, this is look at how the Democrats I, do this. I One just, debate and they're dropping like I flies. just learned how to say Chafee. So. Yeah. Yeah, you used to call him Chafee. 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 Remember the guy that took over the pharmaceutical company? Yes. And took that pill. Mm-hmm. One dollar pill. went from like $13 yeah. to 750 a yeah. pill? Yeah. A pharmaceutical company announced Thursday that it plans to introduce a significantly lower cost version of that pill called Diaprim, the drug that made headlines last month after the price mm. jumped to 750 a pill. Imprimus Pharmaceuticals is the name of the company. They're offering a customizable compound formulation, which is code for something, yeah. of uh, two main ingredients in the pill, which is typically used to treat infections caused by a parasite. It's also used for uh, critical uh, for pregnant women and for those infected with immune deficiency orders like HIV AIDS. Wasn't, wasn't Imprimus Prime uh, a transformer? Could be. Pretty sure it was a transformer. Second or third generation, probably. Huh. So the pill, a uh, they're going to charge about a dollar a pill. Holy cow. And a 100-pill bottle will obviously cost $99. So it's a much more affordable. Right there. And they'll get those people to drop their price even further than <laughs> they were planning. A uh, legislative committee in Wisconsin is set to vote next week on a bill that will legalize blaze pink hunting gear. Why? Under current Wisconsin law, at least half of each article of clothing worn by deer hunters above the waist must be blaze orange to ensure that they're visible to other hunters. Right, okay. But the bipartisan bill under consideration would allow hunters to wear fluorescent pink as well. Senator Trey Moulton, one of the co-chairmen of the Legislature's Sportsman Caucus, says the bill is designed to encourage women to become hunters and to remain involved in the sport. He and other appara- others apparently believe that wearing pink will allow women to maintain their femininity, femininity while hunting. Well, when you think about that, yeah, it's probably the color that's making women not go hunting. Right. It's not the, you know, 
tromping through the grounds for days. It's not blowing a bullet through the head of an animal right. or the heart. It's not eviscerating the animal, dragging it by its horns back to the truck and chawing tobacco. You don't have to chaw. <laughs> It's not that. It's no, the pink. It's the pink. They need to wear pink. So that'll that'll encourage them to I was reading <laughs> Holy that last night. Cow, our Congress. Well no, this is just oh, a this Wisconsin. Is a state. Okay. Oh good. It's a state it's 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 no, I, mean, I get it. I get it. It's it's great. Yeah. It's great. So now like you get the the get pink. Yeah. Yeah. Flaming what do they call it? Raging what do they call it? Blazing Blazing Pink. pink. Great. Can I you wanna predict what Ben will wear tomorrow? Oh boy. Oh, we're not here tomorrow. He'll still wear it. It's, have you seen his blazing pink hunting gear? I have not. Weird. Full camo. You know what? Richard Simmons. Really? Reminds me of Richard Simmons doing sweating to the oldies. Wow, that's that's yeah. an image. Yeah, there's only a speci- like a really narrow place where it where it's actually effective to be camouflage. Yeah, but it's awesome. That's great. Yeah. Well, we're glad. We're glad. <laughs> we're so happy for you, Ben. We're going to take a break, folks. When we come back, um, our Rod Gustafson, our good friend at uh, ParentPreviews.com, which is uh, it's a, it's an organization that you know reviews films and movies and other media f- from a parent's perspective. So you, as a parent, know what you can expect from an upcoming film. Then you know you know whether to send the kids or if you need to go with them. How that all works. We'll take a break. Come back. We'll be talking to Rod Gustafson, finding out about uh, two new movies that have been released and uh, are coming out this weekend. Stick with us, doing what we can to give you the information you need. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, uh, as we like to do on Fridays, we're going to go to parentpreviews.com and our movie critic, Rod Gustafson, who uh, has been reviewing, he's been very busy reviewing a couple of movies and celebrating Back to the Future, too, uh, Back to the Future Day. Hey, uh, Rod, how you doing today? I'm well, thank you, Matt. Great to have you on board again. Um, and you're back home, safe and sound. I am, yes. I always like to ask to make sure, I always like to know where you are, Rod. Yes, I am here. I worry about it for Donna's sake. Hey, talk about uh, the movie you went to, Gem and the Holograms. What is what is that all about? Well, I I know that these days in the society we live in, people like to believe that the the genders are equal and there really are no differences. But it's funny. I always laugh because I think the media is one of the biggest sources of that, what, frankly, I feel is misinformation. And yet the media itself also propagates movies like Gem and the Holograms, which really is a girl movie. Hmm. Definitely, absolutely. This is targeting that little niche area of maybe, oh, I don't know, eight, nine to maybe 12, 13-year-old girls. And these are the types of girls who would shut their bedroom door and turn their music up loud and take the hairbrush and pretend <laughs> it's a microphone and sing into yeah. the mirror. And and that's really what this movie is. That's really who this movie is targeting. Gem and the Holograms is based on a 1980s Saturday morning cartoon, which I really don't remember. I don't either. 
I was I was a little too old back then to be watching Saturday morning <laughs> cartoons, just barely, but a little. And uh, and so it's a film about a young girl who lives in nowhere, California, and she's nobody special. And why would anybody even care about me? And then one day uh, she likes to sit in her bedroom and she sings songs and uh, she records one of them on a video camera. One day her little sister gets a hold of the video camera, puts it up on YouTube and kaboom, literally, they go to sleep. They wake up the next morning, and Jim is just the biggest internet sensation imaginable. Hmm. Uh, I guess people in Australia had a slow work day that day. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and everybody wants to know who Jim is. And then the next thing we know, we have a, thing, a big famous music promoter knocking at her door and wanting her to sign, as they say in the Muppet movie, sorry, the rich and famous contract and <laughs> go to Hollywood. Wow. So it's an overnight success story. This is The Star is Born. Yes. <laughs> for teens, for, for tiny, for teeny bopper girls. Exactly. So, so I mean, the biggest issue in here, I mean, the songs are kind of catchy and whatnot. Um, there is one, so it is Jem and the Holograms. The Holograms, the name of her band, is her little sister and two foster sisters. One of the foster sisters admits that she's been in juvie before, hmm. and she still has a penchant for stealing things every now and then, just little things, but yeah. she still does. So that may be one concern for parents, but the biggest concern for me, uh, if my my daughters were still 10 years old would be this constant repetitious you are special you are special you can be anybody oh, wow. you want to be and you know and jim says this to her little concert audience and then she gets up on the stage and sings and i think well none of them are getting up there no, and that's singing. true and the other, th the other thing it really promotes is individuality. But the joke is, most of her fans are dressing like her. So this individuality <laughs> seems to be a very elitist little. Yeah. Principle. So it's trying to make good points. It's just, but, mm -hmm. but like we've we've had experts on here that are teaching us that maybe we ought to not be just always teaching everybody that they yeah. need to be a star or a special singer or an athlete. Or, I mean, we just need to be average. Yes, I mean, yes, it sounds I, like I, negative, but it's exactly well. And you know, if all of us are special, aren't we all average? And that's, that's exactly really, right. That's really what it boils down to. And so, there's some cool, catchy songs yeah. in here, but they're all the typical anthems, and they sound so much like so many other yeah. songs on the radio that I hear today. I, I call it the hymns from the religion of individuality, and that's <laughs> really what it is. Yeah. So, the, the, so the girls, the young girls, will like this. The twelve, twelve-ish mm. year old girls. It's PG. Right. And what did you rate it? So what we grade did you B give it grade overall? It was a little bit of a reluctant B grade, I yeah. must admit, because I, but, you know, when we when we really look at the movie, I, I think a lot of 10 to 12 year old girls will probably come out of it with a smile on their face. And, you know, it's it's relatively benign. But again, parents, you may want to modulate that message a little bit that not everybody can be a rock star. Um, another movie you looked at was The Last Witch Hunter. Talk about that. The Last Witch Hunter. So this is Vin Diesel. <laughs> I, I laugh. Poor Vin Diesel. <laughs> okay, I just don't feel like Vin is all that great of an actor. Sure. And I think 
it's probably pretty excited about getting with the hopes. And this one definitely is, you can tell just by the way it ends, that they're hoping this is going to be a franchise that's going to develop. From what I understand, Vin tweeted a few days ago that the sequel is moved into development mode. And this is a, a story. Vin Diesel has been cursed by a witch 800 years ago <laughs> who he t- attempted to kill. And he's been cursed with immortality, which means he can never be with his wife and kids in the afterlife. Well, now in the present day, he's walking the streets of Manhattan, and he's aware of all of the witches who are there, and they've they've all entered into this kind of tense little truce that the witches won't harm the ordinary people, but Vin Diesel is one of the people who is in charge of kind of policing this truth. Truce. Meanwhile, the Catholic Church assigns a what they call a Dolan to care for Vin Diesel's character. They they know who he is, and so he has gone through thirty six of them. His thirty sixth Dolan, played by Michael Caine, hmm. is just about to die, and he's been assigned a new Dolan, played by Elijah Wood. And uh, this new guy, he's pretty naive, and so Vin Diesel's character is a little bit concerned whether he's going to be able to do the job or not. Well, it's a, that's an interesting premise. That's a great I – mean, it's, it's got a lot you could do with that. It does, but, you know, it really boils down to – and, in fact, <laughs> one of the characters says, you're not going to go fight her alone. Well, it turns out – and I'm not really spoiling much here because in Lion, on Lion Gates, Lionsgate – who is distributing this movie, they have even revealed the the big spoiler is the, the witch queen who he killed 800 years ago really isn't dead. And so guess what? It's going to be a big battle in the streets of Manhattan for the last 20, 25 minutes of the film. You can see it coming like the 5 o'clock express. Wow. And so it's, again, one of these movies that starts off interesting, but ah, you got the big yeah. battle between the immortal guy and the immortal witch. You know, yeah. like, well, who's going to win? Yeah, we, we know who's going to win. That's Vin Diesel for crying out loud. Um, is it uh, PG-13, right? What grade did you give that? Uh, so this one's going to be coming up, still working on the review. It's not up quite yet, but it'll be getting a C grade on this one. And uh, a lot of, uh, you know, kind of fantasy violence, frightening and and uh, violence without blood. The other thing, too, for people who maybe have a, a religious sensitivity towards witches and that type of thing, a little bit dark, a little bit demonic mm. in some areas as well. Wow. Well, Rod, you did it again. You did. A, you took a you took a bullet for us, um, Rod Gustafson. Again, go check out his his parentpreviews dot com website, and and those reviews will be coming up on both of those movies. Um, it's just great insight, and I appreciate that somebody's willing to go give the parents this information before we just drag our kids to the movie. So, Rod, keep up the great work. We'll talk to you again next Friday, and go check out the website parentpreviews dot com. We'll take a break when we come back. We'll be talking to some of our producers. And talking about food, healthy choices, Ah, quinoa, really? We'll be getting to that. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. That is a cowboy tribute to uh, one of our guests today who's dressed like a cowboy, a cowgirl, let's say. Her name is Kimberly Danes. I was just missing AKA Kaylee K-Dog, K-Delicious Danes. 
And uh, and really, the healthier, more stable part of the producer show today <laughs> will be Liz Miller. <laughs> what? Liz, what? who's dressed just like an average person normal today. Not like... I'm wearing normal clothes. I just have my boots on because I missed home. Okay. Her home, by the way, Chicago. <laughs> Um, anyway, we've asked our producers. We like to have them on the show because they, they do all the behind-the-scenes work, and we feel bad for you. And we like to give you a little chance to be on the air. Um, you know, last time this went crazy, so we didn't have you on the air, you two, for a few w- weeks. <laughs> We're too wild. We're just – we get along. You're too wild and crazy, guys. Yeah. So here's the deal. But you brought uh, – we, we joke a lot with um, Kenya – <laughs> about her eating habits because you're big into you're all gluten free. Mm-hmm. You're you like whole foods. You There's eat a lot of healthy stuff. Eat, yeah. There's stuff you don't eat. When was the last time you just threw back a Twinkie? I don't think I've ever had a Twinkie. No, really. Yeah, Liz. My mom didn't really buy them. And Liz, I'm have sure you I've chucked it somewhere else? Have you? Have so you? Have you really Liz, you've had a Twinkie. Them. I think I've had one. I think it was kind of those early elementary school years when I believed in. Things like Twinkies. Are you a healthy anymore. eater too, Liz? I vary. I fluctuate. Are quesadillas she healthy? She eats carrots. Yes. I eat Ew. carrots. <laughs> quesadillas <laughs> are very healthy. Um, I eat carrots. Okay. So I'm, I will eat whatever's handy. Yeah. Period. I'm always working with you to eat healthy foods. Yeah. And it doesn't work. Do well, you eat the spaghetti squash? Well, but we bought spaghetti squash, but you told me to make spaghetti squash with pasta sauce so that I said it, that was an option. That yeah. was a great option, but then it was then it instead of noodles. Yeah, it's an alternative. So we bought the squash, but we never had the noodles sauce and the squash at the same time, so we just <laughs> ate the squash. Okay. Well, it was still good, right? Yeah, but we eat vegetables. I mean, it's not like I never eat a vegetable. I mean, I have easily two vegetables a month. <laughs> I right. Get the big deal. But um you always talk about other stuff. And so I personally don't believe that I think some of it's overrated. Health food? Like, well, I just think I think <laughs> I think I like think if if lettuce, if Nabisco you... <laughs> if if it was good for you Nabisco and the elves would be doing it. <laughs> right? Keebler yeah. elves, they're not going to they're not going to they're not going to poison you. Uh, right? Uh, they come a, from a tree. Uh, I don't know. It's a lot of sugar, it's a lot of <sighs> So what am I supposed to stuff? do? So give me some healthy alternatives. Well, so instead of noodles, you can use spaghetti squash or other vegetables that you can turn into noodles, like zucchini. Those are alternatives. See, yeah. Keep going. Um, I made you a cake today. This isn't necessarily healthy, but it's a gluten-free cake. So there's alternatives to flour. Right. So I wanted to show you But you're you that. sick. You, uh, you're, you're allergic to flour. Yeah. I, I can't eat gluten, and I can't eat dairy, and I choose not to eat meat. You know that earlier, uh, last hour, we talked to... Um, we talked to a professor who is an evolutionary theorist, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. she basically would have said, if you're allergic to flour, you should be dead. <laughs> and <laughs> My family and, thinks that. And your that. genes would not evolve. <laughs> or you shouldn't be a grandma. Yeah, well, there, or you shouldn't. But so, My thing is it's such a trend right now to go gluten-free. It is gluten-free. very trending. It's, it's like everyone's like going gluten-free, which is great. But you, you do it. You do it to look cool. No. Well, because you wear the shirt. I'm gluten free. Look I at me. I'm gluten free. 
She's kind of like the hipsters of gluten free. Yeah. Like she was first. I did it before it was cool. Yeah. But is it really? It's a real deal. For, I mean, this isn't just a trend, right? For me, you yeah. people are really yeah gluten intolerant. Yeah, definitely. And lactose intolerant. Yeah, those are real. I choose not to eat meat because it grosses me out. But my whole family, they're big on meat. You're, you're meat intolerant. I'm. It's a choice. I'm choosing to be intolerant. Like, but have meat. you ever just had a really good barbecue? So I'm from Texas, and yeah. my dad smokes meat every weekend. Loves it. Like he does he filter it? Is it filtered? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's filtered smoked meat. No, he has like a it's uh, Bluetooth the, yeah. connected to his phone, and it'll go off at three in the morning if the uh, temperature's not right. He goes out there and moves co- like coals around. Like he cares more about that smoked brisket than he does his own children. I think <laughs> like he that is his baby. He would and say I that's just, not true. I sit there and I eat the salad my mom makes because I don't like meat, and my family thinks I'm crazy. Have you ever tried tuber? <laughs> Because that was from our earlier interview where the grandmas used to go out and grab the tubers because the the men would only bring home meat about once every month. Interesting. Okay, so here's what I got to do. Okay. Um, For real, this is... It's a cake. It's a cake. It's made from quinoa. I know it'll be good. And we'll test it. It's not not healthy. It's chocolate and sugar. So what else should I be eating? We've only got a couple minutes. What else should I be eating? Well... We kind of wanted to test you. Okay. So think what's in your fridge right now. Right. And tell me what you think the healthiest things are in your fridge that well, your wife has Let me bought. tell you what I had for breakfast. Perfect. Um, and this is a healthy breakfast. You're claiming this was your healthy no, breakfast. No, this was an available breakfast. Okay. <laughs> but I had, uh, I had what would equate to probably two apples in okay. apple slices. Okay. That's good. I have a, a, but it's all processed in that it's. Ready to go. It's cut. It's all made for me. But it's still an apple that came from God's great earth. Um, Washington, probably. Uh-huh. And I had, um, I also had some uh, cake, like applesauce cake. <laughs> well, it wasn't cake. It was bread. Is that where you were getting your apples from? No, it was, there was another, it was like some bread that. Like a coffee cake kind no, of thing? Yeah. You have a lot of bread in your house, I think. Yeah. My wife's big into carbs. <laughs> She's like the carbaholic. Mm. But she's just healthy as can be. It's crazy, <laughs> and um, but and then and then I have grapefruit slices. Okay, so okay. tell me that's not healthy. I mean, it, but, it's but, not super balanced. The grapefruit slices are good. <sighs> yeah, grapefruit. That's good. that's a good thing. I'm not getting the cake for breakfast. It's not thing. cake. It's bread. Okay, bread with. It's like banana bread, sugar and, kind of. Okay, yeah. Okay, it's sugar bread. Huh. What more do you need? No, right. Really. That was great. Um, but. I, I didn't choose the pudding that was in the fridge. Didn't choose it. That's good. 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 Okay. I didn't choose uh, to do a, what are they called? Like a little um, breakfast sandwich. Didn't choose that. No. Oh. Chose the apple slices. Okay. Uh, and I'll get so, more. So yeah, it's just about little decisions. Every day, know, Matt, you can do it. Well, and I'll get another serving of fruit. I've got a fruit by the foot. Well, there are raspberries on this cake. That counts. Right? I'll eat the I'm raspberries sure the on foot. my cake. <laughs> They're actually quite healthy. In fact, I'm pretty you. sure today I'll get about three and a half feet of fruit. <laughs> I mean, we a lot of people. That way. So I don't know how many servings this a foot is, so is but is I'm so pretty sad. sure it's two servings per foot. Oh, so sad. Yeah, I think so. So what else then should I eat? Like, like. Yours is all gluten. I mean, I get it. Whole Foods. I've heard it. I've heard it. It's just hard. This is easier to grab a bag it's of apples. It's actually not that hard. And a cup of the pe- whatever. People always apologize to me when they find out I'm gluten intolerant. They start telling me how, how sad that must be. And no, I'm, I'm surviving. People. I don't feel bad for you about your food. There's other things I feel bad about. <laughs> well, it's not that hard, Matt. And I can help you. We well, can continue can- to try and encourage you off the air. Well, Kanye, thank you. You're welcome. Liz, 
Thanks yeah. for escorting her in here. <laughs> my my babysitter. <laughs> Liz Miller. <laughs> and uh, like Kanye it. West Danes, <clears throat> a.k.a. Kaylee. They're great. We're honored to have you on the team. And now you can eat cake. And now mm. we will eat cake. Actually, i got to go talk to the other guys oh. down at BYU Sports Nation. Don't tell them about the we'll cake. We'll take a break. We'll come back, visit our buddies down there, find out what's coming up on their show at the top of the hour. Stick with us. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. So bye-bye, Miss American Pie. Drove my Chevy to the levee, but the levee was dry. And then good old boys were drinking whiskey. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Mm. A little American pie because we're eating some quinoa cake. They don't seem to go together. But uh, we're going to shoot it down to our good buddies down there at BYU Sports Nation, Spencer and Jerem. Hello, Joe, oh man. What's up? I don't even know. I don't, I don't think I've had quinoa pie. Haven't you ever had quinoa Describe cake? It. You know what? I will send our producers down to Studio B and we'll give you guys a little slice of quinoa cake. Oh, thank you. Just uh, what's, what's it like? Well, quinoa, you know what it is. It's it's like it looks like a goat, and uh, you have to kill it and hang it up, and then you cook the innards, and it makes Whatever, man. a gluten-free, <laughs> I don't know what it we is. We don't want any of it. Of you don't want any of it? Gluten-free. Hey, I've got a test for you today, guys. I'm going to play some audio, and I need you to decide what you think it is. Are you ready? Yes. Here we go. This is very important. I will play it. You guys tell me what it is. If you get it right, then you get a prize. You get quinoa cake. You get quinoa cake. Here we go. No. Oh, BYU is going to win the national championship. Oh! <laughs> Do you know what that is? I don't remember. What is, what is it? That's um, No, you can't guess. Spence, does he know? The most annoying sound in the world? It's <laughs> exactly right. Nice. No, it's the Jerem the Goat sound. Of course it is. Now, here's a better one. This is my favorite. Oh, that's me. That's that, yep. What's yeah, that? That's pretty good. We call that the hernia yodel. <laughs> nice. That's the 80-year-old hernia get a, yodel. Get a hernia belt. I told you. We'd, we've hernia now belt. got your sounds. And they're on my board, which means I can play them anytime I want. That's right. Hey, is that's it true rest. tonight we have a very, 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 very special moment? Boom, shakalaka, laka, laka. Yeah. Are you guys hosting that tonight? We're hosting that tonight. Boom, shaka, laka, 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 laka. Is that what that was? I think it's like there's a lot of laka in that boom. Yes, there is. Tell me. Dunk contest, three point shootout, skills competition, uh, and you'll see some scrimmaging as well. The men and women's teams. So it's your first chance, one, to hang out in the Marriott Center. For a basketball event, yeah, in the newly renovated Marriott Center, it looks fantastic. Cool, new blue seats, brand new seats, yeah, new video boards, underbelly boards too, awesome. Then you get to see this year's uh, this year's teams. It'll and, be great. And you guys, you host it, or do you participate, or do you just talk? No, no. thankfully we don't participate. Yeah. No dunk contest, three point <laughs> shootout. Yeah, it's live on <laughs> exactly live on BYU TV nine Eastern time. Or if you're local, you want to come hang out, come I'm, hang out. It sounds and it's and it'll be packed with people. It's going to be packed. It's hard to pack that place yeah. for a non Gonzaga type game. Sure. You know what I'm saying? Sure, but, sure. So there there will be plenty of seats, but come hang out. It's you know what? Fun. And this will all be this, this will be televised on BYU TV. That's right. Holy cow! You guys are big time. 
You, is this the big time? Yeah. We're, we're excited. You're hosting a boom shaka laka 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 laka. We hosted yeah. it last Second year, too. I know. I saw you last really year. Fun. It was in the uh, Smithfield House last year. I know. That they was moved, interesting. You guys, um, tomorrow, apparently, BYU's playing um, Wagner, or Wagner, as we like to say here. Fighting School of Rocks. <laughs> is, that, is that their is that their theme that they're well, well because school of rock was filmed there right oh that's right that's right that's right yeah i thought that was their lo- their their mascot the fighting jack was blacks it? jack black oh and that was a great show yeah. no. oh byu is gonna win the national championship oh. hey um <laughs> dude the rest of your life why don't do this to your listeners no it's I hilarious am with you do not do- <laughs> that's jerem the goat <laughs> And the hernia that's yodel. That's what the blue goggled people sound like. That's the idea. Okay, that's it's working. That it's ridiculous. That's the idea. We're going to get more off your audio tonight. We're going to get more sound for you guys, though. Excellent. Because we know you'll do fun Wait stuff. Wait a second. Is that what you hear when you say I'm wearing the blue goggles? Is that the is that the sound that's going off in your mind? <laughs> that's the, yes. No because wonder blue, you're so annoyed by it. Because oh my goodness, blue it all makes sense. Are so ridi- <laughs> like the blue goggled. I did like, hey, BYU can win a national championship football. Don't like be blue goggled or in you'll sound like this. Oh, BYU is going to win the national championship. Exactly. In basketball, if that's what Jerem hears, a chance. Yeah. I totally get it now. Now you understand. Yes. See, we're trying to get you guys together. Like, T- Taysom Hill could win the Heisman. It's like, no, come on. <laughs> like, mid non power fives don't. So get blue goggles are like you know? beer goggles, but it's at BYU where there are no, there's no beer goggles. Sure. What a, yeah. They're blue Great. goggles. They're blue goggles. Yeah, you know, you're drinking the blue laid. You can, you can, <laughs> <laughs> nice. Can, can you buy that before? Can That's you buy good. the blue goggles? You can buy them on you the can B- buy them. BYUstore.com, I think. Can you? And you can get yeah. shots if, if you BYU get Sports Nation sanctioned blue goggles. Wow. They don't come with. You the have a brand them though. That's a great brand. No, I they're mean, on. They're on the. I'm holding them right now. I they're think we can there. hook you up with a pair, Matt. Can you? I'll run it up right now. We know I, some people. I'm, I'm going up right now. You, I'll bring yeah, Jer- you. Jerem's going to be there. I'm you, leaving. You He's run him up, and we'll give you cake that you can run down. Jerem's leaving the studio literally. right Jerem now. Jerem has left the studio. Yes, I am alone. So tomorrow, In yeah, that'll be fun. Band. We'll get Jerem on the microphone. Oh, you you guys don't have time. Um, what's the what? Here's what I have to know, and you got to answer it, Spencer, because this is going to depend on if I watch the game or not. Why should I be interested in BYU Wagner? Wagner. Because not only can BYU finish off an undefeated October, which they will, mm-hmm. and get bowl eligible, which they will, but we for the second time are bringing back BYU Sports Nation bingo. Wow, that's right. That's 25 right. reasons You're why starting you should a new watch game. the game. Dude, that's <laughs> Tell me that's not awesome. That's awesome. I mean, really? And then do they get a prize? Is there a, is there a prize? Oh, hold on. Jerem Jordan in the studio. So tired. You ran the whole way. <laughs> I just ran up. He's Large really thing. got blue goggles. Here's the blue goggles. And we've got quinoa cake. Oh, can I take a? Jerem's out of breath. He, dude, he left like ten seconds ago. Dude, he, oh. you should have seen him. He looked like a gazelle. I dare say yeah. that was a five three five four. No, I have a raspberry. Holy cow! Cake. I'm wearing these goggles. No. And, oh, BYU is gonna uh, win the national championship. Oh. It makes me crazy. We didn't have this no fancy wonder. board in front of us when we did the show this here. Is, I know this is because you know they I'm legitimately me. tired. He's out of breath. Uh, sit up straight. What's happening? There? What's <sighs> happening? Cow. What else do you have on this board? Oh boy, <laughs> Spencer, what's your opinion on anything? Uh, my opinion on anything? <laughs> nice. Hey, good dude. to see you. I'm going to run back down now. See you yeah. <laughs> Holy cow! Down. He started all of our audio. Gosh, he's in great shape. He's uh, he's something else, huh? He didn't even take any cake. 
He's something else. I'm going to send two producers down with cake, and they're okay. going to – because you need some cake. Put on your blue goggles and tell me that I the Wagner did. game doesn't look amazing tomorrow. I did, and it looked different. It looked like you weren't playing Wagner. It looked like you were playing uh, the Bengals. Cincinnati Bengals, right? Yeah. We are playing the Seahawks, but like you, when you the put different. on blue goggles, you yeah. see it from that yeah. angle. Oh, yeah. the Seahawks. Like the NFL Seahawks. Yes. Mm-hmm. See, you know. You guys are good. Hey, um, are, is it true that you, you're the guy that puts the boom in the shakalaka, laka, laka? Well, today I am wearing my BYU boom T-shirt. <laughs> so, Dude, you guys got a good life. We do. Hey, guess who walked through the door? Uh, Jim sprinted down again. Is he huffing? Yes. Yeah, He's going to need all seven of these minutes that we have before the show starts <laughs> to catch his breath. <sighs> this, this, this brings me back to his old days two years ago when he was a runner. They've... Yeah. Runner here at BYU. 53rd in state. 55th. Oh, sorry. 55th state cross country. I didn't go to practice. <laughs> but they let me be on the team. You guys. He, what a, hey, he has this cool uh, board in front of him where he can play the different sound bites. Yeah, we weren't that cool. They upgraded yeah. after we left. Yeah. They're like, well, the clowns yeah. are gone. Let's upgrade. Well they, well, they just said that not everyone can push buttons. But they said I'm really good at it. Yeah. So they, they just. They let us have the mute button. Did they? That's yeah. about it, though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they, 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 it's mandatory in my studio. You have to have a mute button. But I also have these other buttons like this one. That's what it reminded me of when Jeremy was running up the steps. This is how Spencer would do it. <laughs> up onto the bridge. Bounce my way up there. It's so sad. Someday we'll have, some sick we'll, have, things, we'll have button fun, and we'll play a game where I'll just have to use all my buttons to communicate through the okay. entire show. Okay. Okay, next time. Hey, guys, have a great show That'll tomorrow show or, or have a great uh, show tonight. And uh, we'll see you, I'm sure, somewhere on the field at Wagner filling in for the football team. Sounds good. Thanks for the raspberry. <laughs> That's right. Thanks for poking our food and walking <laughs> And we away. looked at the left portion. Yeah, that was awkward. Yeah. Okay, we'll bring you something down. Thanks, guys. Have a great show. Goodbye. Goodbye. Yeah. Can't believe we ran up here. You know what it would take to get me to run? Do you know how hard it is to run after you've eaten Twinkies all morning? I would I'd have to sit down halfway up the steps just to, like, cough out a Twinkie. <sighs> they got a great deal. They're going to do Boom Shakalaka tonight. We never – take a note, Ben. Will you ask Don why we never get – to do boom shakalaka, laka laka. Yes, do you want me to ask him indignantly or yes. calmly or? Yes, both. Start okay. with indignation. Okay. Then calm it down and just say, no, seriously, Don. Okay. How come we don't get to be on boom shakalaka? Let's just invent our own. We don't need to go do theirs. Let's just invent our own. For marketing purposes, should we keep the same name or? No. Yeah. Let's just do boom, boom de Leon. I'm not going to write that down. It's like Ponce de Leon, but boom, de Leon. I just think it sounds really exotic. Uh, Did you hear this story? This is just sad. A 32-year-old man facing assault charges after his stepfather claims that they got into an altercation over spilled Kool-Aid. Oh, come on! I know. 57-year-old victim told police he was at home around 11 p.m., Saturday, after he got into an argument with his stepson and the stepfather knocked over his cup of Kool-Aid. After becoming irate over the spilled drink, the younger man reportedly punched him in the head. 
Kool-Aid. Stepson reportedly fled from the area after the assault. A short time later, police were called back to the home when the stepson returned and officers reportedly found him hiding behind his bedroom door. Which is so interesting because if you've ever seen a Kool-Aid commercial, he always breaks through the door. Right? How old is he? The man? uh, 32-year-old man. Yeah. 57-year-old victim. Right? And is he still living at home? Apparently. (laughs) Well, not anymore. He's actually been dismissed. He's no longer living at home. But the interesting thing is he still is drinking Kool-Aid, which is just so ironic. Um, Anyway, as you know, we always like to end the show on a hero story. And uh, who better to do that? Then uh, our hero this day is Cameron Norcross, a 26-year-old. The man makes a kidney donation in honor of his brother and saves the life of a complete stranger. Mary Alice Garza has autism and was very sick. They say it took the generosity of a stranger to save her life. Cameron Norcross donated his kidney in memory of his younger brother, Tyson Ulibari, who died suddenly at the age of 18 one year ago. Ulibari was a registered donor, and his organs saved six people. His parents remember him for his generosity and his selflessness. Cameron's operation was exactly one year to the day that Tyson died. Tyson's mother said he had a real soft spot for people with special needs. She said if he had a choice about who to give it to, it would have been someone like Garza. When the word got out to Garza's mother, she couldn't hold back the tears. She says it feels like a miracle, and the doctors agree. There are a lot of coincidences that happen in organ transplant, too many to be coincidences, said Dr. Jeffrey Campson, a transplant surgeon at the University Hospital who performed Norcross's operation. Sometimes organs find people. It sounds corny, but I think they do, said the good doctor. So, uh, Cameron Norcross, thank you to you and a special shout out uh, to your brother, Tyson, um, who, you know, who also was a hero in his donations um, after he died a year ago. So we appreciate both of you and best of luck to uh, the recipient who uh, got those organs. We hope uh, she recovers as well. Mary Alice Garza. We'll take uh, that's it. Not even a break, folks. We're out of here. Thanks for listening to us again. We can't do the show without you. Until Monday when we'll be back, uh, take care of each other, look after each other, and remember we're all in this together. Until tomorrow, make it a great one. We'll be back on Monday.